You're in the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. We're back from the minds of Gene Steinberg and the tricksterish mind of Chris O'Brien. <laughs> by the way, Chris's new site, the updated version of OurStrangePlanet.com, debut this week. A few glitches, but we're getting it mostly working. Much better, much faster, loads much faster on your Mac or PC or Linux box. And we're going to be adding a lot more stuff, such as a shopping cart system, so you can buy one of Chris's great books. It's all coming in a few days. Meantime, we got the basic thing up there. Yeah. Hey, that's 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 big. That's huge. I love the new site. One of our uh, listeners volunteered to do the heavy lifting, spent quite a bit of time getting a beautiful new site up, uh, WordPress style, and I'm really looking forward to starting to plug in a lot of material. And the San Luis Valley Camera Project live feed will be the first addition to Our Strange Planet once we get all the bugs worked out. It's kind of complicated to do it. And the way we're going to do it is through Apple's QuickTime, which works on a Mac, a PC, or a Linux computer, but not so much the mobile computer. We're going to have to figure that out. We'll figure out something, a good yep. scheme that everybody can see it. Meantime, if you're a new listener to the PowerCast, you can get in touch with us. And it's very simple to do that. All you have to do is send us a tweet at the PowerCast or write us news at thepowercast.com, and we will read each and every letter we get. You can also leave messages in our forums at forum.thepowercast.com when we have a guest scheduled. Chris, how's that work? Well, what we do, Gene, uh, is we put up a question bank thread, which invites listeners to the show to uh, submit questions for our guest. And as soon as we know that we're going to be taping a show with a particular guest, we then put a, a question thread up there. And that's a, that's a chance for our listeners to get their you know, own personal particular questions answered. Uh, since we're not a live show, this is the best way that we've figured out to include you know, our many listeners uh, in the process. We've got quite a number of questions uh, for today's guest, too, it looks like. And one reason why we don't use live calls, and we could. We have a way that the network can schedule a time for us to receive live calls. But what that would mean is that, first of all, it would force you listeners to be available at a specific date and time. And we know you live around the world. So somebody from Australia may have to get up early in the morning, whereas somebody in Phoenix will do it in the evening. It really doesn't work. Being able to post the questions in advance, you can edit your questions, make sure they're properly phrased. It makes it easier to express yourself with the time on your hands. And the thing is, of course, sometimes we book a guest at the last minute because of the change of events or a guest cancellation or a change of schedule. And so we have to give you a very restricted amount of time. In the case of our guests, whom we'll announce shortly, we had over a week for you to ask your questions. Now, last week, we talked to Bryce Sable and Rich Dolan about their book, AD After Disclosure. And you know that Chris and I have been skeptical about disclosure, but whatever causes the truth about UFOs to be known, what would the impact be on our society? So what's your assessment, Chris? Well, I thought, I thought Bryce and Rich did a, a really good job opening up the discussion and, and looking at some of the, the points that I think most, most people really don't think about when it comes to the subject of disclosure and the implications of that. I think they did a, a very good job illustrating the nuances, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, that are involved in this whole topic. And uh, I did not 
come out and really voice my opinion about the the actual subject of disclosure and and how I, I don't feel that there's a snowball's chance in hell for that to ever happen. The U.S. government's been lying to us for 60 years. Even if they did disclose, how could we believe them? I, I really wanted to give Bryce and Rich uh, the time and the, the attention to, to go ahead and, and list out the things that they felt were important about this issue. And, and I thought they, they represented the whole, the whole idea very, very well. And they brought me a little bit back towards uh, <laughs> the center, not much, but a little, and uh, I, I do really appreciate the amount of work and thought that went into their book, and, and we've had a really good response, I think, uh, from the show, and um, look forward to having them back. It, it felt like the two hours just zipped by, and and um, I really, you know, I think it's uh, worthy of a of a part two, don't you? I think so, and I think we will have them back to answer more of your questions, but the point being here is we don't know what the government knows about UFOs, any government. We don't know if they have guilty knowledge. We don't, for example, know if that any of our developments in technology have been reverse engineered from alien technology. And that brought us back to, of course, the story of Philip Corso and the book The Day After Roswell. Very controversial. A lot of people think the book was just a fake. And I guess you can understand why, because there were a lot of errors or inconsistencies in the book. And what this particular episode and the session we had which Dolan made me feel is that it may be that Philip Corso's book suffered from the fact that he was getting on in years. Maybe a lot of the information he provided was imprecise. The editing was rushed. Loads of errors creeped in there. The publisher didn't do their due diligence and do proper fact-checking. Whatever, there may still be a story there that we'd be curious to know more about. Yeah, well, my, I think the jury's still out on the amount of uh, involvement that Corso's co-author, uh, Bill Burns, you know, where Corso's uh, version of events ended and Burns's. um version of them started. I do know Open Minds has published the original manuscript that Corso, you know, compiled and then used that as the basis for his corroboration with Burns. Uh, I haven't personally gone in and and done a, a, you know, a real intensive comparison between the two versions, but I, I do think that their point that there was a looming deadline of the 50th um, anniversary of Roswell and you know they may have cut some corners and cut to the chase a little bit uh, trying to finish the book in time but, and but it's again, also possible that's why they brought on board Bill Burns who is someone who is a professional writer and can graft a compelling story and so where things weren't clear he just wrote without going into detail yeah. of the content but I think looking at the original manuscript would be helpful, and maybe we'll do that and see if it's worth further exploration. Or maybe it's just the red herring. Something had happened. We had this old man at the end of his years who wanted to make himself look more impressive than he otherwise would have been. Well, they brought up a very good point that uh, Corso's reputation was sterling and that um, he was able to get someone as uh, prestigious as Strom Thurmond to write the forward to the book. Of course, Thurmond then... When he, once he found out what it was being used for, I think he had that uh, forward pulled from the uh, subsequent editions. But, but still... Uh, That's what bothers me. That's what bothers me about this whole case is the fact that Corso, whatever they thought of him, and maybe they thought of him as being, you know, difficult to deal with, whatever. Forget about the personality quirks. Whatever it is, he is somebody who 
accumulated some really good credentials. Why would he just throw it all the way with a book about flying saucers saying that he was part of this plan to send alien technology into private industry? Who knows? But we are going to look at secrets today because we're going to look at a book from our old friend Nick Redfern called The Pyramids and the Pentagon. And he always has these long subtitles. So this is one of the longer subtitles we've seen. The Government's Top Secret Pursuit of Mystical Relics, Ancient Astronauts, and Lost Civilizations. civilizations. Yeah. I like that. I think it's a good title. Yeah. And I know Nick's a good guest. He's one of my favorite guests. And this is going to be a fascinating show today, Gene. It's going to cover a whole lot of ground, you know, because it covers such things as how the secret files in the CIA, what do they reveal about Noah's Ark and the Dead Sea Scrolls? That's starting to sound like Indiana Jones, you know, the original Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they stick it in a warehouse 13 beneath the government, beneath the Smithsonian or something, and all these things are never to be seen again. What kind of secrets do they have? Army documents about Egyptian pyramids, UFOs at Stonehenge, ancient astronauts. Wow. Vamana's nuclear war in the ancient past, dancing uh, megalithic sites. Yeah, this is good stuff. Lots of stuff there with Nick Redfern joining Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. Summer's here. That means that many of us will be spending more time working from home or while traveling. So getting everyone together for that company meeting may just be an impossible task. But not if you have GoToMeeting with HD Faces by Citrix. It lets you host your meetings with clients and colleagues face-to-face all while online, no matter where they are around the world. You know, my listeners can try GoToMeeting with HD Faces free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, use the promo code PODCAST, then download the free app. One more thing, GoToMeeting is giving away eight new iPads on Facebook. Just visit Facebook and like the GoToMeeting page. Then you can enter to win your new iPad. And then you can refer a friend. And if they win an iPad, so do you. Check it out. Like GoToMeeting on Facebook and you could win an iPad. So you don't want to carry a gun, but you do want to ensure your personal safety. Then empower yourself legally with self-defense products from StunGunMikes.com. Stun guns come in more shapes than just what you see on TV. Now you can get a powerful mini stun gun that fits in the palm of your hand, a stun baton, or a cell phone or lipstick stun gun. StunGunMikes.com also carries real spy gear like bug and metal detectors and discreet car and home security cameras that hide in almost any type of everyday object, from alarm clocks to pens. Now you can see how your babysitter really treats your children. Go to StunGunMikes.com, spelled just like it sounds. StunGunMikes.com Buy real spy gear from StunGunMikes.com just like the exact same spy gear sold to the government, military, corporate security, law enforcement, and private detectives. Empower yourself with self-defense products now from StunGunMikes.com Love gardening but don't love seeing your hard work destroyed by wildlife? Then use the number one most effective deer and rabbit repellent you can buy, Plantskid. 
PlantSkid repellent protects gardens, trees, and landscaping by emitting an odor that browsing animals associate with predators. So animals avoid plants before they nibble, not after. PlantSkid is made in the U.S. from non-toxic, 100% organic, environment, and pet-friendly ingredients. Other repellents wash off in the rain. Not PlantSkid. It's guaranteed to outlast all other repellents. PlantSkid was the first animal repellent to be OMRI listed organic and now comes in liquid spray, powder concentrate, or easy-to-use granular. Just sprinkle around your garden. For proven protection from deer, rabbits, squirrels, and other small rodents, use PlantSkid. Member tested and recommended by the National Home Gardening Club. Find a dealer near you at PlantSkid.com. That's PlantSkydd.com. Ask about our new vol repellent when you call 800-252-6051. That's 800-252-6051. PlantSkid, proven plant protection, guaranteed or your money back. Hello? Congratulations. For what? For losing all that weight. How'd you do it so fast? ASAP. ASAP what? What's that mean? Are you ready to get as skinny as possible, as soon as possible, as simple as possible, and as sexy as possible? I'm listening. Then get with the ASAP program. It's real and it works. No smooth talk, no slick advertising, and no exaggerated claims of success. I've got to know more. Welcome to ASAP, as slim as possible. Whether you have 10, 20, or 50 pounds to lose, ASAP is your weight loss answer. ASAP targets the abnormal fat reserves and makes them available to be burned as fuel and contains no caffeine or hormones. Order ASAP at wholesale prices or join the team to share the business with others. Visit GCNteam.com or call 877-878-4203. GCNteam.com or call 877-878-4203. Lose weight and look great with ASAP, as slim as possible. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. On the Paracast with Gene and Chris, we welcome back an old friend, Nick Redfern, who is also, by the way, one of our guest co-hosts that means... On rare occasion, he's going to take over if Chris is lost somewhere in the mysterious valley. But our friendly, prolific author has a book with a top-secret label on top, which means, of course, I can't hold it now, and I have to hide it. No, seriously. It's called The Pyramids and the Pentagon, The Government's Top-Secret Pursuit of Mystical Relics, Ancient Astronauts, and Lost Civilizations. So, Nick, welcome back to the PowerCast. The big question here is your quest to find what the government knows and when did they know it. How did you get started on this? Well, I mean, it's a story that, for me at least, sort of goes back about 10 years ago when the CIA declassified into the public domain through the Freedom of Information Act, literally only about seven or eight pages, but they were intriguing papers on something that became known as the Ararat Anomaly. And the Ararat Anomaly is this sort of weird formation that some people say is the remains of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, uh, other people say um, it's just like a weird rock formation or whatever, you know, or who knows what it is. But the CIA, there have been rumours for years that they had been sort of looking for Noah's Ark for whatever reason. You know, that's the more intriguing question. And in response to various uh, freedom of information requests, they released a few snippets of material. And I kind of found this interest. You know, there's no smoking gun in there as such. So what I did was to sort of follow up with that and actually ended up getting sort of 50, 60 pages over the course of the next few years, which sort of filled in more and more gaps. 
And then I began to realise that the official world, if you like, had sort of been delving into a lot of other ancient and sort of archaeological and historical mysteries as well. Many sort of related to ancient astronauts, religious issues, ancient civilizations, that sort of thing. So I basically thought, well, you know, a lot of books have been written on the whole, quote, ancient astronauts, ancient aliens angle, but nobody had sort of really touched upon like a book length, what the government knows about the subject. So I figured, you know, why not try and do that? And, you know, I, I sort of spent five or six years collecting material then sort of spent the last 18 months or so just sort of cranking it out and whatever. Now, one of the things I noticed here in the highlights I got from the PR agency ahead of actually getting the book were at the beginning you talk about the CIA's top secret files, again about Noah's Ark, and also about the Dead Sea Scrolls. As I mentioned to Chris in our previous segment, this started me thinking about Indiana Jones. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I actually start the book sort of using the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark story as a parallel because, you know, the, the final few minutes of Raiders of the Lost Ark shows the, gov the U.S. government basically acquiring uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the Ark in the film, and taking it away to this sort of Hangar 18-type warehouse where instead of being studied and examined or whatever, it's just put in like a wooden crate nailed down and loaded up with a bunch of other you know things that are also locked in in crates etc and so you know the although the movie obviously is fiction you know the analogy is there that government agencies have taken an interest in mysterious artifacts of the past and you know if if they've acquired some of them then they've got to be stored somewhere that was the reason for using that to sort of show, you know, that fact, that old analogy of fact being stranger than fiction. Now, in the case of Raiders of the Lost Ark, of course, they buried it. As you say, Hangar 18 or Warehouse 13, whatever it's called, they bury the technology. So can we assume here that if the U.S. government, using a fictional film, obviously, acquires some sort of advanced technology or mysterious ancient artifact, they'll simply hide it away out of sight, out of mind, as long as nobody else gets access? No, I actually don't think that is the case. I think one of the things I point out in the conclusion of the book, you know, or address, is the issue of, well, why on earth would the government be interested in the mysteries of the past? You know, there's no way it's just to further our knowledge of archaeology, history, and, you know, the mysteries of the past. That, that's not what the government's business is. So there's obviously got to be something else. The one trend that seems to run through everything is that they were looking at the idea that, you know, did the sort of the world of the past, thousands of years ago, have access to technologies that we've either lost, forgotten about, or just plain don't know, you know, that they, they existed thousands of years ago and they're gone. So it's clear that they were trying to understand sort of weapons of the past and, and weaponize history, if you like, weaponize ancient archaeology as a tool of warfare for the present and the future. So, no, I don't think that it was a case at all of them just putting this information away and filing it and forgetting about it. It was trying to actively do something. And, you know, the main action of governments is spending money on warfare. And, you know, so it makes sense to imagine that that was the, the side effect of digging into these areas was to, you know, to, as I said, to weaponize it all. Right, a little R&D action, uh, research yeah. and development, try to back-engineer the technology and utilize it for uh, whatever uh, purposes yeah. that they can figure out that it could be used for. The Ark of the Covenant would be an obvious example, of course. Raiders of the Lost Ark goes into a fanciful kind of look at the potential for the, mm -hmm. for the Ark's power based on, on what's you know, written in the Bible. 
What do you think, Nick? Do you think that uh, just in, as a blanket sort of way, sort of a general way, do you think that we did have some sort of uh, ancient technology in the past that uh, was exalted? Yeah, I, I mean, I honestly truly do believe that. Um, but what I don't think, I don't think there was like a civilization or civilizations 30, 40,000 years ago that were exactly like ours, where they had computers, TVs, cars, their equivalent of 747s or whatever, because the entirety of that to be obliterated and I find no evidence of it is just not feasible. And it's, and it's also not feasible for the government to be able to shut down every archaeological site around the planet or even stop somebody digging in their backyard and stumbling across something. But the fact is, for the most part, we haven't found sort of telltale signs of a hugely advanced culture. But what I do think is the ancients had access to technologies that, ironically, in some ways, were far more in advance of what we've got today, but in a, in a different way. You know, we're not going to find, I don't think, an old equivalent of a hard drive, you know, or a 1990s floppy disk or something. But all around the world, in ancient cultures, you hear stories about how the ancients had sort of fantastic and almost magical ways they were described to move vast stones, multi-ton stones over vast distances, and even into the air. A lot of cultures have these stories about levitating stones. And, and I actually think there's something to this. I think when you look at a lot of these stories, whether it's England with Stonehenge, South America with the Myers, the Incas, even Egypt, they talk about, and, and even Rome and Greece, they talk about um, the stones being lifted by what was described as magical music or whistling or to the sound of a, of a musical instrument, which all of this is sort of related to the technology of acoustics. Now, the, the military today is researching this area, the idea of using acoustics and frequencies where you can direct them and actually sort of levitate small objects within the, you know, the, the sort of the frequency wave and sort of buffer them back and forth with the sound waves uh, to balance them. And if you look at it from that perspective, I actually think, how, I mean, how they did it, that's a different question. But I think a lot of these answers to the questions about, very baffling questions about, you know, 100 tons, uh, rocks weighing and stones weighing 100 tons, 200 tons, you know, how did they move them? And I think the ancients had access to some sort of levitation technology of whatever means or, you know, mode, that's a different thing. But I think they had something, yeah. We have Nick Redfern. The book is called The Pyramids and the Pentagon. We're looking at all the things that they may or may not know. You're with Gene and Chris. You're in The Paracast. <laughs> America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. If you want to get your website online and you need reliable service, first-class service at the lowest possible price, there's only one place to go. Well, DreamHost has a special promotion with our show where they'll offer you unlimited disk space, unlimited bandwidth, one-click web apps such as WordPress, 24-7 support. You can save over $55. You want to know how? Go to DreamHost.com slash radio, DreamHost.com slash radio. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. What are you waiting for? 
your fate awaits. We all know that Berkey Water Purification Systems are the most trusted name in water filtration. As an authorized Berkey dealer for over six years and serving thousands of satisfied customers, the Berkey Guy offers amazing specials for Berkey Water Filtration Systems. The Berkey Light Systems include a set of self-sterilizing and recleanable black purification elements that purify water by removing chlorine, pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites to non-detectable levels and remove harmful chemicals such as herbicides and pesticides. Order the Berkey Light Systems system today complete with two black berkey elements for only 231 dollars and the berkey guy will ship your order free of charge with the purchase of a berkey light the berkey guy is also offering a set of fluoride and arsenic filters for only 39.99 that's over 30 percent off the retail price call the berkey guy at 1-877-886-3653 that's 1-877-886-3653 or order online at goberkey.com that's goberkey.com today For a long time, you've heard me talk about building your own food supply with eFoods Direct. As a listener, you know why you need to have a supply of the best storable food on the planet. Every day, we document the attempts to take control of our lives. But there's one thing we can all control. Your greatest dependency, food. eFoods Direct products are made with only the best ingredients and none of the trash and contaminants like trans fats, GMOs, or MSG. This food is nutrient-dense and tastes great. It's simple to make, portable, and has a shelf life of up to 25 years. Now with eFoods Direct, you'll get the most affordable, best-tasting food you can buy. And the new products and pricing will blow you away. Compared to other food sources, including home-cooked meals, you can cut your food cost in half. You just can't afford to ignore this. Call 800-409-5633 or go to eFoodsDirect.com forward slash Alex for specials. Don't let this offer pass you by. Call 800-409-5633 or eFoodsDirect.com forward slash Alex. More the best for less guaranteed. In a coming-apart world, you need something to keep it tied together. That something is Atwood Rope, the highest quality rope made in the USA from exotic braids for military, rescue, arborists, shipyards, tow line, or boating. Quality rope at affordable prices you and your customers can depend on. Find a dealer or shop online at atwoodrope.net. Enter promo code RADIO to receive 100 feet of 550 paracord free with purchase. Atwood Rope, working to keep the world tied together. 37 things to hoard. Do you have the 37 crucial food items you can't survive without? When disaster hits and mobs go crazy grabbing food off the shelves, your family may be without food or waiting in long food lines. Prepare now at 123survivalplan.com. That's 123survivalplan.com. Many people don't have these 37 food items. Learn what you need to hoard now at 123survivalplan.com. Watch the video over 1 million people of you to discover the 37 food items that will sell out first when disaster strikes at 123survivalplan.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? With Gene and Chris, joined by Nick Redfern on the Paracast this week, we have the book The Pyramids and the Pentagon, and we're looking into possible ancient technologies and maybe what the government knows and when did they know it, perhaps. Now... When you talk about these ancient technologies, let's look at our technology. And something happened, and our civilization went from where it is now to ruin. If we came here 30,000, 40,000 years later and looked everything up, new civilization develops on Earth, how much would we see of our present civilization then? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think also it, de it does depend on, you know, the, the level of devastation that destroyed the previous civilization. You know, if, if a virus wipes us out, you know, the human race, well, not everything else remains intact. So, you know, there would be massive evidence of that. If there was a worldwide nuclear war, then, you know, the evidence would be fairly scarce. So, you know, you can look at it from that angle as well. And that's one of the interesting things, you know, with the further we look back, we find also stories like, for example, from ancient India, where a lot of their texts and legends, you know, talk about these battles in the sky using what were known as vamanas that sound basically like, when you read the translations, like um, equi ancient equivalents of top gunfighters, you know, doing battle and with nuclear-tipped missiles and destroying cities and provoking radiation poisoning in people who had the, this, the, the uh, old manuscripts talk about troops, soldiers sort of running into the water to cleanse themselves and their fingernails dropping out and all sorts of things like huge explosions and, you know, massive balls of light and fire in the sky and the ground rumbling. And when you read it, it sounds, you know, it's like somebody is describing ancient nuclear warfare, albeit at a restricted sort of localized level in India rather than, you know, a worldwide thing. And, and that wouldn't surprise me, you know. I'm not sure if I accept the notion of a massive worldwide culture all around the planet that flourished and totally vanished. But I, I would be far more inclined to accept, and actually do accept, that there probably were localized civilizations that had achieved a great deal of technology that, you know, far in outweighs anything that we, you know, conventional science and history tells us today and probably did flourish. But And they are more likely to vanish, you know, if they were just localized rather than, you know, all across the entire world. Yes, but I wonder about that. If a civilization is that highly advanced, wouldn't they be traveling around the world, as they said, to spread the joy or explore? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you could argue that. But, I mean, then on the other hand, we're looking at that from our perspective you know, it's kind of like, I mean, you look at any civilization on the planet today, they have different attitudes to different things. I live in America now until I was 36. I lived in the UK. We speak the same language, but the countries are vastly different. And the way people go about their lives is vastly different. You know, if so if we're talking about 40,000 years ago, you know, what would go through the mind of the average person who is brought up in a culture that for all intents and purposes, you know, could be almost alien to us, you know, that yes, they would be human, but depending on what they believed and, you know, how they lived, you know, who knows what, you know, would have gone through their mind in terms of how they sort of lived their lives. I mean. So can we look at this as possibly Earth people reaching these pinnacles of civilization only to have something bring it down or some influence by some outside force or intelligence? Well, I mean, I don't think it necessarily has to be one or the other. I mean, I think, I don't think anybody doubts that you know, the human race is sort of fairly self-destructive at the best of times, you know. So an argument could be made that maybe it's just simply the natural course of things that when, you know, at a certain period, you know, each civilization reach a reaches a critical tipping point where it survives or it doesn't. And because we have no evidence of massive cultures before ours on a level of ours, that suggests one of two things, either that they didn't exist, which I don't buy, or they destroyed themselves or got destroyed. I mean, I mean, look at our planet now, you know, the, the civilization's getting bigger and bigger, the people are getting bigger and bigger, the health's getting worse, you know, 
I mean, you see things on the news, like, for example, the age limit has gone up, you know, it's like 80 or something now. What a lot of these shows don't tell you is that, you know, they're now saying that for the first time in American history, you know, the kids who are being born are after the lifespan's going to go down because they're going to be, you know, diabetic and sick by the time they're 15 because they do nothing, they go nowhere, they don't ride the bikes around town anymore, you know, they just sit in the house and eat and play on the computer. So in other words, you know, we have that problem. We have overpopulation. We have resources being used up. You know, this won't go on forever. You know, it's like the guy who drinks a bottle of vodka a day. You could conceivably do it for a month. You keep doing it something's going to give out in the end, you know. And I think that's the same with our civilization. Anybody who looks at it, oh, we're the good old human race, it'll all be okay. Well, no, it won't. Something will happen that will be a critical tipping point one way or the other. Now, one of the things you explore in the book is the government's reasons for being interested in these ancient technologies, lost civilizations, etc. I guess the obvious thing, of course, is to find technology. Is that a big part of it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would would go almost as far as to say that that's the only part of it. There isn't, contrary to what a lot of people might think, you know, there isn't an agency of the U.S. government that sort of goes around just trying to, or any government really, you know, just trying to preserve archaic artifacts or whatever for the sake of it. You know, there are agencies that get funded to do that sort of thing. But in terms of like an official agency of the government that, you know, charges headlong all around the planet just trying to you know, preserve this or not that. That doesn't happen. So there has to be another motivation. What's interesting is that with regard to this whole theory about uh, places like the pyramids and some of the Mayan and Inca structures being built via what, in simple terms, you know, we would call levitation or anti-gravity, if you like. Back in the 1950s, one author and researcher was very heavily involved in this and actually came to that conclusion was a man named Morris Jessup, um, he wrote a number of books, including Case for the UFO and several others. Morris um, K. Jessup, yes. Now, yeah. it's an interesting story about him because he allegedly committed suicide in a Ooh. park in Florida. Allegedly, that's right. Yeah. I mean, this is a weird story because Jessup was a guy who basically had two prime interests, one being UFOs and the other one being the mysteries of the past. And the more he dug into them, he came to perceived them as being uh, joined, you know, there was a a combined thing. He spent extensive time in South America, you know, looking around the old ruins. He actually went out there and checked them all out and began writing about how, in this book, The Case of the UFO, that he concluded that ancient man did have access to some sort of levitation technology. Now, what happened was that a guy named Carlos Allende, who claimed to be involved in the uh, Philadelphia experiment, so this goes down sort of other pathways, bought a copy of Jessup's book, and filled it with all sorts of weird annotations about levitation and the Philadelphia experiment and sent it anonymously to a scientific division in the U.S. Navy. They wondered what on earth they got their hands on, tracked Jessup down and invited him out to D.C., where they basically grilled him all about the information. Now, a lot of people have said that, you know, the Navy was concerned that Jessup was getting too close to the truth about the Philadelphia experiment because Allende claimed to have been involved in it, this sort of vanishing ship, etc. But when you read, a lot of people don't take the time to read all the annotations in the book. Most of them have nothing to do with the Philadelphia experiment. That's sort of like a red herring that everybody said and everybody's then assumed it. If you read all the annotations, a good 90% of them are focused around ancient technologies, levitation, and old civilizations that flourished and vanished. So we could make the argument 
that that was the reason for the Navy's interest in Jessup, was this sort of levitating technology, and that would tie in, you know, with weapons, etc. Well, you see, what bothered me is the so-called Vero edition of the case mm. for the UFO, which has been published. I mean, there are copies available that you can see the annotations, but didn't Carlos Allende or Carl M. Allen, whatever his name was supposed to be, later on confess he was just goofing on us? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no doubt that, you know, he was... I mean, the Philadelphia experiment's an interesting story because there are a number of strands and threads and different people who said they knew about it. One of them was Allende, who was the guy who got more publicity than anybody else. But it's quite clear that, you know, his story is full of holes. But he wasn't the only one, you know, to talk about this. I mean, other people have come forward on the record as well to say, you know, they either saw film footage or red files, etc. We'll Um, talk about the Philadelphia experiment, Mm -hmm. how it relates to the book, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, and what the government may have known or have done. In all these ramifications, we have Nick Redfern with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. Yes, we are. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy. We've got like, I guess, 60 or so different items. And entails T-shirts, sleeves for notebook computers, iPad cases, mouse pads, the Paracast Jumbo Tote Bag... All sorts of T-shirts and jackets and stuff like that for men and women. We have a Paracast aluminum water bottle. All this stuff, you go to store.theparacast.com, store.theparacast.com. What makes it special is that the items are the best quality. You know, great T-shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special in multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children. Stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Paracast. You go to store.theparacast.com, stop by, and take a shopping tour. Survival is not about the end of the world. It's not about a hypothetical plane crash or the latest violet storm. Survival is about the satisfaction of knowing you can take care of yourself and your family in any situation, anytime, anywhere. CampingSurvival.com was started in 1956. No, not the dot-com part, the survival part. CampingSurvival.com has over 17,000 urban, wilderness, and preparedness items. Supreme customer service, very low shipping and no games we look around to make sure we have the lowest prices and campingsurvival.com is 100% usmc veteran owned don't base your survival on the latest spring up on the internet company do business with an authority on survival campingsurvival.com use coupon code gcn at checkout and campingsurvival.com will take five percent off your order campingsurvival.com confidence born of preparation We want to know, how do you use WebEx? I live in my car, sometimes a rental car. Every day, I find a nice, quiet place to pull over and meet a client through WebEx, face-to-face on my smartphone. This is the way to do business. The new free version of WebEx Meetings lets you take your office anywhere, your desktop, laptop, or mobile device. Get your free WebEx Meetings basic account now at WebEx.com. WebEx from Cisco. W-E-B-E-X.com. 
Webex.com. We the people grow cotton, weave fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit, and carting to a private bank, having it lent back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Hi, Ted Anderson. I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237. Now at DeseretFoodStore.com, sign up for a one-month supply of delicious food for only $99 with free shipping. That's right, only $99. Gourmet restaurant-style meals with a 30-year shelf life. Packaged in heavy-duty Mylar bags for easy transport and freshness. Meals like stroganoff, lasagna, teriyaki, five-bean chili, granola pancakes, and much more. Visit DeseretFoodStore.com, spelled D-E-S-E-R-E-T, foodstore.com, or call 801-444-1444. Food for now, food for life. 37 things to hoard. Do you have the 37 crucial food items you can't survive without? When disaster hits and mobs go crazy grabbing food off the shelves, your family may be without food or waiting in long food lines. Prepare now at 123survivalplan.com. That's 123survivalplan.com. Many people don't have these 37 food items. Learn what you need to hoard now at 123survivalplan.com. Watch the video over 1 million people of you to discover the 37 food items that will sell out first when disaster strikes at 123survivalplan.com. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast. Nick Redfern wrote a book called The Pyramids and the Pentagon. I'm Gene Steinberg. The co-host is Chris O'Brien on the Paracast. And we got into, I guess, another can of worms here, the Philadelphia Experiment. Now, there have been fictional movies about what happened. As we know, there was an original Philadelphia Experiment and then a sequel. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, you know, the story's tells like a fantastic sensationalized story of time travel and sailors going from the 40s to the 80s and back and forth and uh, i mean you know it's a cool film i mean you know to what extent any of this is based in reality that's the big question and that was something that morris jessup tried to find out and um this guy carlos allende or carl allen he had several aliases claimed to have witnessed one of the experiments where supposedly a warship vanished and then sort of reappeared now, I think the fact that the Navy took so much interest, I mean, they, they paid to have Jessup flown into D.C. They paid for his hotel room, his meals the night before his breakfast, his flight back home, covered all his expenses. That, to me, suggests this wasn't as the Navy claims today. The Navy doesn't dispute they, that Jessup was flown in and interviewed and that copies of the book were made. Twenty-five copies of his book were run off by this company called the Varro Corporation just outside Dallas. They don't deny that, but they... Their position is that the two guys, the two um, U.S. Navy scientific guys that interviewed Jessup did so out of hours and on their own free time. And and the Navy's view is that whatever its employees do in their spare time is their business and not the Navy's. But the fact is it was the Navy who picked up the tab for everything, even the 25 copies to be printed. So that story doesn't really hold water. What I do think is that even if, Carlos Allende was a con man, I think he picked up strands of a real event, ran with it, published the information in, uh, sort of wrote all this information in the copy of um, Jessup's book that he got, sent it to the Navy. Somebody in the Navy said, hang on, you know, this guy, whoever it is, he's got snippets of that thing we did back in 43. Let's find out what's going on. And then they pulled in Jessup to grill him. But the more they grilled him, the more they 
delved into this issue of levitation than just the vanishing ship. So somewhere, I think, there was a real truth that was being hidden, and the Navy got tipped off that Jessup may have been in on at least part of the story, and they, they wanted to know which parts, I think. Nick, where do you come down on the story uh, that Al Bielek tells uh, about him and his brother, Al, of course, not uh, time traveling forward, but his brother did. I think, it was, what was his name, uh, Cameron Duncan or Duncan Cameron or something? Well, yeah, like- I mean, it's, it's an interesting story, you know, but it's, it's kind of like which came first, the movie which portrays that scene or the guy who claimed it happened to him. I mean, what we have to remember is if you go back and read every book, every report, every story pre-Al Bielix, they talk about the ship vanishing from view, even sort of being teleported, allegedly, from one place to another and then back again, of the crew being injured, some of them dying, some of them just vanishing completely. But there's actually no talk of the ship going forward to the future and then coming back again. The only person to talk about this initially was Al Bielik after the movie, which portrays the time travel angle, came out. So... You know, it's one of these situations where if you're going to make extraordinary claims like that, then you've got to find some way to back it up. And we have to answer the question of why is it that in terms of the story of the time travel angle, why was it never told before Albili? That, that to me, is kind of fishy. You know, every other theme is there except for the time travel one. Now, for some of our first-time listeners who may not be familiar with the complete Philadelphia Experiment story. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but uh, the Eldridge was supposedly teleported from, I think, uh, Philadelphia Harbor or Harbor uh, near Philadelphia to Norfolk or Virginia or someplace. Yeah, that's that- right. Yeah, well, basically, the, the, the story, the unofficial story is that the Navy in the Second World War or, or all, the entire military was looking at ways to defeat you know, the Germans, the Japanese, the Italians, the, the Axis powers, as they became now, known. And the battle was on, you know, to, to find the ultimate weapon. And the story is that, you know, at the same time that people like Oppenheimer were trying to develop the atomic bomb, other agencies were looking into other areas. One that supposedly the Navy was looking into was to basically create like an early stealth technology that would make its ships invisible to radar and also magnetically invisible, which would mean that the, the Germans had these sort of magnetic bombs, which you know, could have, would have basically attract themselves to ships. So the magnetic mines, I should say. So, you know, there were different ways of, they were looking at different ways to cloak their ships from um, detection by the Nazis. And supposedly that in one of these experiments using high-frequency technologies and all sorts of weird and wonderful things, the, the Eldridge was, was not deliberately, because optical invisibility was supposedly, ironically, never part of the experiment. It was an, it was an unforeseen byproduct. But supposedly, the ship became opt- optically invisible, but people could still see like the outline in the water, you know, where the water is displaced through the weight of the ship. So it's obviously still there. But then it reportedly like, really vanished and supposedly sort of flickered on and off over at Norfolk, uh, for a second or two, and then reappeared um, back in in the Philadelphia Naval Yard. And uh, no, the reason why pretty much everybody's commented on it who claims to have been there or read about it. So the reason why the whole thing was shut down and you know clamped down was not because you know the project went black, so to speak, and carried on, but it was simply because everybody got cold feet and didn't really know what they were doing, weren't sure what was you know doors they were opening, etc. 
and because the atomic bomb became the weapon that ended the war, everything was brought to a halt until, you know, back in the, in the 50s or even the 60s when somebody said, hey, you know, let's now go back and take another look. So, uh, you know, I think something happened. But the big problem, of course, is trying to understand... It's like Roswell. When there's no files available from the time on the case, it's trying to difficult to understand where the truth ends and the legends and the rumours and the hoaxes begin. But like Roswell, I think something happened. So. You also have the, um, the alleged involvement of Tesla technology. Uh, all this was brought in much later. So, so you think that there was something to the actual story, it, but it may not, you know, the details may not uh, dovetail with the legend, so to speak? Well, yeah, because, you know, the problem is that, like, again, with Roswell, pretty much everybody's dead. Searches for files have turned up nothing. The government, again, like Roswell, does have an explanation. They said it was all to do with, like, magnetic degaussing experiments uh, that could create, like, corona discharges, and that might have um, led to some of these stories and things like that. So, that, again, the military doesn't deny something happened. But the problem is, you know, how we take it to that next step. Certainly, a lot of the story can be traced back to Allende, um, who who wasn't credible. You know, he was he was shown to be a fantasist and you know a fraud basically. But in saying that, when we say he's a fantasist and a fraud, the more we look into it, it seems to be the case that it's from his perspective. But he may well have picked up strands of stories that he heard when he really was. I mean, he was in the navy, no doubt about that, at the right time. So it may well be the case, as I believe, that he picked up stories and strands of tales and then inserted himself into this story, you know, for his own self-ego or whatever. So. so maybe we didn't have an invisibility problem during World War II. Maybe it was, at the very basic sense, an attempt to block radar, stealth technology oh, yeah. I mean, that did yeah. not go wrong, but he embellished well, he may well have embellished it, or it's possible that whatever technology was being used inadvertently did result in optical invisibility. Um, now, nowadays, our own scientists are experimenting with stuff like that, being able oh, yeah, to cloak I mean, something. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, research from rudimentary levels where, you know, paint, aircraft were painted sort of almost like mirrors, you know, so they would reflect the sky. You know, that's not invisibility, but optical camouflage and things like that has been researched for years. Um, the British military, for example, have been researching, and this is sort of like really far out stuff, the idea that, like you say that, for example, an aircraft flies over the, the ocean and it's blue skies above, that the actual coating of the aircraft will change blue. And if the sky turns gray, the coating will turn gray, like a chameleon. It's and, kind of an automatic uh, camouflage or some mechanism yeah. that is activated manually. Oh, yeah. it's becoming cloudy. Let's push switch number three. Yeah, and then it literally, you know, it alters the shade of, of the coating. Um, they've been researching that. Now, that's not invisibility, but it does demonstrate, you know, some of the weird areas that things are being addressed. Now, what everybody who's sort of looked into the Philadelphia experiments agrees on, those that accept, you know, that something strange happened, is that, you know, will people say, well, why, don't, why aren't we using this technology today? And the reason being, a lot of people assume that the project was to try and make the ship invisible, and it worked, and they hid the evidence. But if you read all the books, as I said, optical invisibility wasn't the goal. The and I'll tell you what, our goal is to listen to our benefactors for a moment. We have Nick Redfern 
with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. Oh, I was just taking a gulp of coke. I thought uh, <laughs> you were going to cut. <laughs> 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 The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. If you'd like to listen to GCN programs on the go, I have great news. GCN has created a Droid and iPhone application, and it's free. Just as easy as going to GCNlive.com, click on the banner, and download. Before you know it, you'll be listening to your favorite hard-hitting GCN shows, live or on demand, right on your Droid or iPhone, 24-7 and on the go. So download the Droid and iPhone app free by clicking on the banner at GCNlive.com. Thanks again for listening to GCNlive.com. Again, that's GCNlive.com. We the people grow cotton, weave fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit, then carting to a private bank, having it lent back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Ted Anderson, I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237. Emergency Essentials has Mountain House deals in June. Going on now, Emergency Essentials, the 24-year leader in emergency preparedness supplies, does it again. With up to 25% off Mountain House foods. Don't miss these savings. All Mountain House number 10 cans are 20 to 25% off during the month of June only at BePrepared.com. Mountain House foods have superior taste and a scientifically proven 25-year shelf life because they start with fresh or frozen foods, then cook, prepare, and finally freeze dry them all the goodness flavor and taste are locked in as if handmade from scratch mountain house the same great meals enjoyed by campers and outdoorsmen the world over hurry now through june 30th call 800-999-1863 to experience exceptional customer service and the beprepared.com low price guarantee that's 800-999-1863 the choice is clear be unprepared or beprepared.com We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. The book is The Pyramids and the Pentagon. The author, Nick Redfern, with Gene and Chris and the Paracast. And we've gotten to explore that ancient tale from the 1940s of the Philadelphia experiment about possible efforts to learn to hide under the radar, as it were, and what might have gone wrong. Now, you were talking about the books showing some kind of central possibility here that needs to be explored, an underlying truth? Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of misconceptions made about the Philadelphia experiment, that the government was actively and aggressively pursuing literal optical invisibility. None of the books, contrary to what a lot of people think, say that. They say that was an inadvertent byproduct, a mistake, of trying to develop magnetic and radar invisibility and that the technology that was utilized had a, a reaction that nobody anticipated. And from there, the theory is that even afterwards, they weren't really sure how or why and under what circumstances optical invisibility had been obtained or, or achieved. And so it was all closed down until after the war was over and then sort of reignited to look into it all again. 
Uh, which would make sense, you know, this this wasn't sort of peacetime with a bunch of guys sitting around saying, oh, you know, what are we going to spend the next couple hundred thousand dollars on? This was sort of fighting for survival during war. And if one weapon didn't work, you know, they funneled everything into another. That's why the atomic bomb program worked, because it was so aggressively pursued, you know, with countless man-hours and personnel just pushing for this. That might explain why, to a degree, even within government, it vanished into obscurity because of the time frame, you know, people were trying to stay alive, never mind, you know, just make a ship invisible. But how do we know any of that is true and not just a bunch of science fiction stories pushed together? Well, that's the answer, we don't. But what I do think is interesting is that you know, Carlos Allende wrote all this stuff about the Philadelphia experiment in Morris Jessup's book. And instead of just tossing the book in the garbage or whatever, the Navy flew Jessup in to grill him for two days and then printed off 25 copies of his book with all this stuff annotated by Allende in there about the Philadelphia experiment. I mean, this was sort of pre-modern day photocopying machines, you know, copying a full length book then it was like a really laborious task. You know, the technology was even different. And you've got to run off 25 of them. And they chose a company in Dallas who then had to pack them all up and ship them out to D.C. You know, we're, we're talking about costs that probably ran into, you know, I mean, we're talking 60 years ago almost. But, you know, I mean, it would be a substantial amount of money to fly Jessup back and forth, put him up in a hotel, feed him, hire the, the Varro company to print 25 books, you know, all the paper and the technology that involves, so, in other words, I don't see the Navy doing all that if there was nothing to the basics of the story. That's the thing that bothers me, that annotated edition. If it wasn't for that, I'd dismiss the whole thing. Now, understand that when Charles Berlitz wrote his book about the Philadelphia Experiment, and it was a sequel to the one about the Bermuda Triangle, he had never seen the annotated version. I gave it to him. I gave him my copy, and he actually used me as kind of a sounding board for a lot of things in that book, a little historical record. I didn't know that. But, uh, I mean, I've never seen a copy of the original annotated one. I mean, you can actually find the annotated version online, but it's basically like an HTML version, you know, and um, with the colors added in, the different colors to demonstrate the the annotations. But I've, I've never seen, you know, the the original, the copies of the original, if you like. Well, I believe... Gray Barker published them at one time, one of the many things he brought out. But looking at the end of it here, this is something that the direction of this experiment and everything, the Pentagon knows that now. Is that part of the premise? They know what really happened then, or they care about what really Um, happened then. Well, yeah, I mean, I think somebody in government knows what happened in Philadelphia in 1943. Whether or, you know, to what extent it's still being researched, you know, versus if they even understood what happened. You know, I think sometimes we give governments too much credit that if they're doing something, it's because they've got all the answers. You know, you imagine you undertake an experiment 60 years ago and it goes totally wrong and you don't know why and it was shut down and then 30 years later you're some colonel in the Pentagon who's ordered to reopen the files and look at it again. You know, it may not be the easiest thing to do. It's one of these issues where maybe they're still scratching their heads. You know, maybe there are people in government who are saying, I wonder if the Philadelphia experiment really happened, you know. Or they think they're a bunch of crazies like us who are exploring it. Yeah, exactly. It could be either. It could be a bit of both. Okay. Any other episodes of that nature, strange scientific developments that you may have heard about that the Pentagon may know about? 
Well, you know, I mean, I think the other one um, that, that, that really sort of springs to mind in terms of, you know, trying to weaponize things at least, which, as I said, is one of the, the central themes, is, is the story of Noah's Ark. You know, the, the fact is today that the Ararat anomaly, as it's known within the Pentagon, has attracted deep interest on the part of the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the U.S. Air Force, and also um, a U.S. Air Force slash um, intelligence operation known as Project Moondust. Project Moondust was a, basically an official body whose job it was to sort of acquire captured, or, or to capture, I should say, foreign advanced technology, you know, say if a part of a Russian uh, spy satellite crashed in the Indian Ocean or something, you know, the Moondust guys might go out there, retrieve it if they could, take it back to the Foreign Technology Division of the Air Force and analyze it to see if it could be used to further U.S. military technologies, weapon systems, etc. And the very fact that this particular unit was copied on documentation on the Ararat anomaly suggests to me that there was something about Noah's Ark or the Ararat anomaly, whatever it is, that goes far beyond, you know, this more simplistic story of just like a huge wooden old rotted boat on top of a mountain. So, you know, I think we can apply it in, in that case as well. But the big question is, what does that mean then that Noah's Ark really was or wasn't? You know, it sort of opens up another can of worms. Well, if we're going to explore the Philadelphia Experiment can of worms, what about Noah's Ark can of worms? What might it have been if not just a ship? Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the story, at least, to answer that question, you know, we'd go back to the beginning of the story. What happened was, in 1949, on one particular day, a U.S. Air Force spy plane was headed over Turkey, which bordered its borders on the former Soviet Union, because the basically um, CIA personnel had heard that the Russians were trying to, or were starting to build a new um, military base close to Turkey that would be sort of strategically you know, at the disadvantage of the Western world, if you like. You know, it would be something they didn't want to see built. So the plan was to have this spy plane fly over Turkey very high and take photographs of whatever was going on in this one particular area. And the guys on the plane, because this was coincidence, but they had to fly by Mount Ararat to get to this particular site. As they closed in on the mountain, which they were using as kind of like a signpost, one of the guys said that he could see what looked like a two, literally like a two to three hundred foot long aircraft wing sticking out the ice. Now, parts of Mount Ararat, the very, you know, the top parts are pretty much snow and ice capped all year round. And the Turkish government doesn't like a lot of people sort of meddling on the mountain. And it's pretty much closed off to a lot of people a lot of, year, of the year round. But they reported seeing this vast wing like structure on one part of the mountain, and then also a similar one on another part of the mountain. So the captain swung the plane around so the chief photographer could actually get pictures uh, of whatever this thing was. And when the, uh, the original mission was over, they returned to base, the pictures were all developed and vanished into the part of the Pentagon. Some of them, a few of them, have actually resurfaced, and you can find them on the Internet. The Defense Intelligence Agency has, has got them on their website now. And if you... If you Google Ararat Anomaly and go to the Wikipedia page, you'll see one of the pictures reproduced there as well. So they're in the public domain now, but for years, you know, nobody knew about them. And what's interesting is that the CIA got involved in um, the whole thing in the uh, early 50s. Um, today, they say, well, you know, we, we kind of, we, we sort of looked at it, but only from the perspective of the fact that sometimes, you know, our... Um, 
aircraft would fly over the area and, and they'd take pictures because they'd heard these stories at sort of, you know, in the Pentagon at work or whatever. And it was just, you know, something in their spare time, just a little anecdote to say they got a picture of the Ararat anomaly. And now, we'll get a picture that. of the Ararat anomaly <laughs> after we get this sort of picture. We have Nick Redfern with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. <laughs> Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. When I hear about natural disasters and the danger of having no water, I'm not worried. Why? Because I have an Aquapod. Got it from MyPatriotSupply.com. The Aquapod Emergency Water Storage Kit comes with a pump and a huge 65-gallon bladder that easily fits in a standard bathtub, allowing a family of four a 14-day supply of safe, fresh water and at a much lower cost than bottled water. Made in the USA with BPA-free material, the Aquapod keeps water fresh for up to eight weeks. Just fill from your tub, then pump into jugs or bottles. The Aquapod is only $29.95, and when you buy two or more Aquapods at MyPatriotSupply.com, com you'll qualify for free shipping plus check out the survival seed vault with 20 seed varieties tattler canning lids the nation's only customizable long-term storable foods and much more at mypatriotsupply.com get stress-free shipping on all orders over 49 dollars call 866-229-0927 or visit mypatriotsupply.com for emergency preparedness self-reliance and food independence you may snicker when you hear this message, but you won't laugh after you experience the best-kept health secret ever, Camel Milk. Camel Milk is loaded with health benefits far superior to other milk. Camel Milk has antibacterial, antiviral, and anti-tumor properties, is rich in B vitamins, and Camel Milk is three times higher in vitamin C than cow's milk and ten times higher in iron. And Camel Milk contains 52 units of insulin-like proteins per liter, effectively lowering blood sugar levels. Many of our members testified that drinking camel milk reversed diabetes and greatly improved autism. Camel milk is easily digested by those who are lactose and beta casein intolerant and comes fresh or frozen from your trusted local family farm shipped on dry ice to preserve freshness. Go to CamelMilkForSale.com now and look under Products and Pricing for this spring special with free bonus pints. That's CamelMilkForSale.com, CamelMilkForSale.com. Healthy soils grow healthy plants. So before you plant your survival garden this year, is your soil healthy? Maximize your crisis garden soil with EM1 from Terraganics. 
EM1 organic soil conditioner, fertilizer amendment, and compost accelerant provides healthier gardens and faster, efficient garden composting. EM1 from Terraganics.com quickly improves soil structure by increasing nutrient availability and converting organic matter into soil humus. This improves seed germination and root growth, improves plant quality, size, color, flavor, nutrient value of fruits and vegetables, and improves shelf life. And when rain is not in the forecast, no worries. EM1 improves moisture retention in soils, helping reduce drought stress. Just like you prepare all else, prepare your crisis garden for maximum yields with EM1 from Terraganics.com. Order now at T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com or call toll-free 866-369-3678. That's 866-369-3678. Terraganics, life's getting better. There was a laughter that we used to hear in the days of the shadow. You know, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men, the shadow knows. And the laughter that was allegedly done by Orson Welles when he played the shadow, but actually he couldn't do it, they had another actor do it. Now you know the story that you don't care about. We do care about Nick Redfern. The book is The Pyramids and the Pentagon. The government's top secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations. And we're looking now at, shall we say, more legends and stories. Proceed, Nick. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, sort of this Ararat anomaly that we're talking about, this perceived arc on Mount Ararat that might not actually be an arc after all. Um, the CIA doesn't dispute, you know, that it's sort of taken a tangential or very off-the-record interest in the arc for years. But they've always maintained, you know, we've never gone out there. We've never sort of sent personnel to try and check it out. Um, we've never made an, a really active, deep, definitive search for it. And, but that actually is not the case. I mean, we can demonstrate that from the files that have surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act. And I'll give you a classic example. Back in 1975, a new book had just been published on the Ararat anomaly, or on Noah's Ark, I should say. And the author in question was actually advertising it and promoting it at a shopping mall in Washington, D.C. What was interesting is that the, you know, you expect people are going to come along to the bookstore and buy copies of your book. Well, thanks to the Freedom of Information Act, what we know today is that there was a high-level order sent out from within the Office of Scientific Intelligence at the CIA, ordering three of their personnel to go out to this particular shopping mall, you know, in sort of just shirt sleeves and jeans or whatever, you know, don't go dressed like men in black or whatever, and check out the, this display. The official documents actually say that in doing so might help us on the matter of the ARC problem. Now, one of the things I point out in the book Number one, this issue of orders, official orders being sent out to scientific personnel in the CIA to check out this basically like a display and a book signing, all that Noah's Ark, that, number one, makes a mockery of the idea that the CIA wasn't interested. You know, if you're even sending people out to bookstores to um, track down every lead, then you're sure as hell are doing something. On the other hand, and then on the second thing is this reference, this curious reference to the Ark problem. You know, if there was nothing weird on Mount Ararat, if the CIA wasn't interested in it, why were they even referring to it in secret official documents as the ARC problem? You know, so that even though we don't have all the answers, we don't have smoking gun documents, we have things like this that clearly show something was going on and there was a deep reason for official interest in whatever this weird thing 
on Mount Ararat was and, and still is. Well, uh, one thing that's always intrigued me is the uh, interest by uh, NASA, I think, Apollo astronaut Jim Irwin, who I think in the early 80s mounted an expedition to try to find Noah's Ark. So that, that fact alone is very intriguing. It's a kind of reminiscent of Neil Armstrong searching for underground cities and lost treasure in, uh, I think, underground grottos in Bolivia or someplace in the early 70s. How about Irwin's expedition? Uh, where did he get his you know, motivation to, uh, to mount that? Well, you know, I mean, Irwin was interesting because like a lot of the astronauts, you know, who came back from the moon, they came back sort of like profoundly changed. Some of them in like a spiritual, almost, others in almost like a mystical way. You know, a lot of, that happened to a lot of the astronauts. And I mean, you know, we don't necessarily always have to sort of ascribe that to the, you know, some sort of weird paranormal event that happened to them. All that, that could have been the, the, the case. You know, it could well also have been the very fact that you're on a different world and you, you know, your worldview is so strangely changed. You know, you imagine what it must feel like to stand on another world and look out and see your own little planet and you're no longer there. You know, the number of people who've done that is so small. It must be, you know, mind-blowing. But equally, you know, people, as you said, some of the astronauts have been changed in, in other ways. You know, sort of they began looking into the mysteries of the past. And Jim Irwin developed a deep interest, not just in Noah's Ark, but actually proactively going out and trying to find it. And he, he went on a number of expeditions to Mount Ararat in Turkey to try and find it. And these were actually sort of only curtailed when he had a bad fall and, and then basically had to stop as he was getting older. But what's interesting is that Irwin himself actually heard rumors and stories about the Ararat anomaly. And what happened was that he basically just took it upon himself to phone a senior operative in the CIA who he heard also had some knowledge of the Ararat anomaly and basically put him on the spot and said, hey, you know, I'd like to know what's on, Noah's, what's on Mount Ararat and what the CIA has learned about it. And um, the guy basically blew him off and said, you know, we've never found Noah's Ark on, on Mount Ararat at all. But, you know, there's a backstory there to still be discovered, you know, what it was that prompted Jim Irwin to realize and follow up on the fact that, hey, the Pentagon seemed to know something about Noah's Ark. And this was way back in the early 80s when Irwin was sort of pursuing the government's angle. Well, what kind of technology could, you know, the Pentagon, the CIA or whomever be interested in that might be found in an ancient uh, shipwreck site like that on top of a mountain? Well, yeah, well, I mean, that's the big question. I mean, if we sort of take the literal story of the Bible, you know, Noah's Ark was just a huge boat built big enough to hold a whole bunch of animals inside it, and that was it. it but it was still, you know, made of wood, and it was a boat. So that would be something of interest to historians, archaeologists, theologians, etc. But there shouldn't be any reason why a big old boat and nothing else should be of any interest at all to the Pentagon. Now, one of the things I talk about in the book is the fact that Project Moondust, this official project of the U.S. government, was basic, and the military was basically involved in obtaining and exploiting for U.S. military purposes advanced overseas or foreign technology. And, of course, if they're going to take an interest in the Ararat anomaly, which they certainly did, then there's got to be more to it than just a huge boat. If we look at a lot of the stories all around the world, different cultures and civilizations, they all had legends of worldwide floods. You know, they talk about the gods preparing them and telling them, you know, to go into the mountains or build huge ships. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, numerous cultures have stories very, very similar to the one of Noah's Ark, you know, the these sort of ethereal deities and gods 
warning people, you know, you need to build this huge ship by a particular date because all hell's going to break loose. But what's intriguing is that whereas the Bible talks about, you know, Noah loading animals on the ark two by two, others talk about the arks containing the essence of the animals or the seed of the animals, which sounds almost, as I point out in the book, and as some researchers have speculated, like a massive preserved collection of DNA of life on Earth which would make more sense than the sort of fairly ridiculous image of trying to see Noah round up, you know, two fully grown tigers and pushing them on the ark, you know, which is liable to get his head bitten off, do you know what I mean? All that sort of stuff to me, interpreting it literally is ridiculous because because it is ridiculous, you know, and it's not enough to say, oh, he was able to get two elephants on the ark because of God's magic, you know. Well, you know, the other question would be then, Nick, if interpreting it literally is ridiculous... What is the Pentagon doing? Well, the Pentagon, obviously, we're looking at this, I think, another angle. Now, of course, if you've got Project Moondust involved, if you've got the CIA sending U-2 spy planes over, you've got analysts looking at photographs, you've got CIA personnel going out to bookstores and checking out the latest books on the subject, then clearly they had uncovered something of significance. But the problem is, like a lot of these stories, which is frustrating for all of us in these fields, is that we can go so far with them, and then we sort of hit the proverbial brick wall. Before we hit another proverbial brick wall, we have Nick Redfern with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. (laughs) Who knows? What evil learned? That's the wrong show. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs convert from so many formats i can't even list them download now to see if graphic converter is good for you like one and a half million other users guess what you could save money when you buy graphic converter use the coupon code night owl use the coupon code night owl to get a special price for graphic converter go to lemkesoft.com that's l-e-m-k-e soft.com lemkesoft.com l-e-m-k-e soft.com Attention business owners and individuals who owe the IRS. Do you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes? You need aggressive representation. Call Certified Tax now and speak to one of our tax attorneys, enrolled agents, or tax professionals who specialize in tax liens, back taxes, tax debt, wage garnishment, and collections. We won't waste your time. Instead, we'll be on the phone with the IRS within 30 minutes of you becoming a client. And you can become a client right now. We've settled millions of dollars in tax issues for a fraction of the cost. Find the Peace of mind knowing the IRS will not be knocking at your door. Protect your home, business, and family today. We know the tax laws, and we act fast. Call today for your free, no-obligation consultation. 1-800-685-9751. Remember, we'll be on the phone with the IRS within 30 minutes of you becoming a client. That's guaranteed. Call Certified Tax at 800-685-9751. That's 800-685-9751. Again, 800-685-9751. 
Hello? Congratulations. For what? For losing all that weight. How'd you do it so fast? ASAP. ASAP what? What's that mean? Are you ready to get as skinny as possible, as soon as possible, as simple as possible, and as sexy as possible? I'm listening. Then get with the ASAP program. It's real and it works. No smooth talk, no slick advertising, and no exaggerated claims of success. I've got to know more. Welcome to ASAP, as slim as possible. Whether you have 10, 20, or 50 pounds to lose, ASAP is your weight loss answer. ASAP targets the abnormal fat reserves and makes them available to be burned as fuel and contains no caffeine or hormones. Order ASAP at wholesale prices or join the team to share the business with others. Visit GCNteam.com or call 877-878-4203. GCNteam.com or call 877-878-4203. Lose weight and look great with ASAP, as slim as possible. For a long time, you've heard me talk about building your own food supply with eFoods Direct. As a listener, you know why you need to have a supply of the best storable food on the planet. Every day, we document the attempts to take control of our lives. But there's one thing we can all control. Your greatest dependency, food. eFoods Direct products are made with only the best ingredients and none of the trash and contaminants like trans fats, GMOs, or MSG. This food is nutrient-dense and tastes great. It's simple to make, portable, and has a shelf life of up to 25 years. Now with eFoods Direct, you'll get the most affordable, best-tasting food you can buy. And the new products and pricing will blow you away. Compared to other food sources, including home-cooked meals, you can cut your food cost in half. You just can't afford to ignore this. Call 800-409-5633 or go to eFoodsDirect.com forward slash Alex for specials. Don't let this offer pass you by. Call 800-409-5633 or eFoodsDirect.com forward slash Alex. More the best for less guaranteed. We have Nick Redfern. He is not Lamont Cranston. He is not the shadow. The book is, unless we're talking about shadowy things here. The Pyramids and the Pentagon is the book with Gene and Chris on the Paracast. We're exploring all sorts of mysteries, ancient mysteries, Noah's Ark. What does the government know? Why would they care about somebody's ship? that was built thousands of years ago, or was it a spaceship, maybe? Well, that's, that's one of the theories, you know, a number of ancient astronaut theorists have put together. You know, the idea, the, the very fact that all around the world, these legends have, exist of massive arcs built to preserve life and that they were connected with messages that came down from the gods telling people to build them, you know. And a lot of these stories, as I said, don't talk about animals being loaded on board the ships, despite what people think. That's the interpretation. They talk about the essence or the seeds of the animal being taken on board. That has given rise to the idea, you know, in the same way that on Earth today, there are vaults underground. There's a famous one on the island of Spitsbergen, just off the coast of Norway, which is like a huge, massive seed repository in the event of a national, you know, a worldwide disaster. There are literally millions of seeds stored on Spitsbergen in this underground facility in the event you know that life needs to start over again so to speak so you know the idea that somebody else may have come here may have realized that the earth was in trouble and was prepared for a a massive disaster and took some steps to try and preserve life at a localized level by you know just hauling off examples of the you know the life that existed and then that created legends of arcs and gods etc 
you know, that, that, that's quite a popular theory within ancient astronaut research. Chris, we had questions from the audience. Any of those relevant to what we're talking about here? Yeah, a bunch. But I, I, before we uh, get to our listener questions from uh, forum.theparacast.com, I want to uh, just mention to Nick a little kind of an interesting side note uh, involving what appeared to be helicopter flights and, and construction loads slung underneath that uh, I was able to videotape about a month ago right near the location of a fabled underground city um, that's located at the confluence of Grand Canyon and the Little Colorado River Gorge. This is you know, the famous 1909 Phoenix Gazette story of two guys affiliated with the Smithsonian stumbling on this uh, entrance oh, yeah. to, to the underground city. Now, I find it very interesting that I should go out there with a David Hatcher Childress, Ron Regeer, Gary David, uh, some some pretty uh, credentialed and 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 up to speed researchers and investigators, and and to stumble on what appears to be illegal flights, flying equipment down to a site that may be the ancient place of emergence for the Hopi and Zuni. Uh, are you aware of any sort of government interest in that particular alleged underground city? I'm not, unfortunately, but I mean. I mean, I would. I, the only thing I can sort of comment on is that it sort of parallels interest in, in other areas, you know, predominantly in the Middle East and South America, where government agents and personnel have taken an interest, you know, to the extent of, you know, spy missions to, to take photographs or get film footage, satellite footage, that sort of thing. So, you know, it, it, it's nothing out of the ordinary. You know, it, it's another example, I think, and, you know, which is important. That dovetails nicely to a question from Conrad Hartman, one of our posters uh, here at the Question Bank. And he asked, to what extent, if any, have efforts been made to provide archaeological evidence for political agendas? In Nazi Germany, part of the Annenerber's purpose was to provide evidence for the government's racial theories. In the U.S., was there ever a religion-driven organization either funded by or containing elements of the government whose objective was to obtain evidence to support religious and political goals. Yeah, why don't you uh, address that one, and then he has a follow-up. Okay. Well, not so much in this issue. I mean, I think you had me on, on your show a couple of years ago when I had that book out, Final Events, about a group in the government that was sort of looking at the idea that, you know, the whole UFO phenomenon was demonic. That's probably the closest in terms of trying to vindicate, you know, sort of a particular theory that links it sort of with religion, etc. But now, every case that I talk about in this book, pretty much, you know, the fact that it was related to religion or ancient archaeology was a sidebar, if you like, and the, and the entire thrust was just to try and uncover new technologies. It was nothing about, you know, you, the, the questioner is actually 100% correct. You know, with the Nazis in the Second World War, you know, one of the sort of beliefs of the Nazis with this was that the so-called Aryan race, you know, their roots could go back to Atlantis and even further, and they were perceived as being, you know, the master race. And part of the reason for the Nazis looking for all these artifacts was correctly, as, as the questioner said, to, to, to try and vindicate those theories. But no, in America, it was all about, you know, just going for the technology. That leads to another question from uh, poster social worker chef. Interesting uh, tag. He's going to uh, take us to dinner. What's going on? Here? <laughs> well, uh, I'm not sure uh, about that. We'll have to ask him uh, next time he posts. But he asks if the U.S. government is so interested in finding these objects, what would they do with them once obtained? 
Would it be a scenario like Hitler attempting to find the Spear of Destiny because he thought it would make him invincible? And that brings up a whole other subject that you address in your book, and that is the uh, Himmler and the SS's attempt to go around the world, uh, which, of course, is one of the themes in the Indiana Jones movies of the Nazis looking for these occult and um, you know, potentially high technological events from ancient uh, times. Uh, what about that? Uh, do you think that yeah. the the government is interested in finding them uh, uh, for some sort of occult purposes? Well, you know, I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, government agencies over the years have delved into occult areas, you know, even things like witchcraft. And in the 50s, the CIA uh, actually had a little side project where they researched Ouija boards to see if they could be used as like a tool of espionage to spy on the enemy. You know, so government, you know, it's not much of a jump from there to things like remote viewing and psychic spying which the Pentagon was heavily involved in at one point. So, you know, they have looked into occult, if you like, paranormal-based areas. But in terms of, you know, when the questioner asked about, you know, what were they going to do with all this when they got their hands on it? Um, again, I think it comes down to trying to develop weaponry. But one of the biggest problems, of course, even for government agencies, if you're trying to find the Ark of the Covenant, you know, which hasn't been seen who knows how long and and you know the re reported sort of secret storage places for it all around the world no matter if even if you're the government how are you going to find it you know that that's one of the challenges i think that the government came up with or was faced with and it was a problem you know it's not like you get word that a russian satellite just crashed and so you go out to the site and get it you're talking about trying to find something from three, 4,000 years ago, when all you've got to go on are ancient manuscripts, texts, which have been possibly translated and retranslated and retranslated again, and you know there's something potentially significant that might be worth you finding or trying to find, but how do you do it? So, again, I think a lot of it was probably hit and miss. You know, it, it's like with the Ararat anomaly that we talked about earlier. Um, they spent a lot of time trying to determine what was going on with it, what it was, does that mean they answered the question and actually got anything of value from it? No, it doesn't. It just means, you know, maybe they did. Maybe they just put a lot of files together and pictures and, and were left scratching their heads because the Turkish government wouldn't allow them up there. So. Your tax dollars at work. Mm. Exactly. That's why I worry about things <laughs> like that, because you wonder, is the government truly concerned about this, or do they have a few wacky people with time on their hands and they want to do something to earn their paycheck or at well, least keep their jobs so they play around with this nonsense? Well, I actually think it's a bit of both. I mean, you know, it is a fact that you have official agencies, you know, who have a, a one particular mandate and that's it. What you also have are, you know, government agencies throw money here, there and everywhere and set up think tanks if there's a chance of something working. I mean, I'll give you a classic example using the Freedom of Information Act a few years ago, I got a hold of a bunch of U.S. Army files from the early 50s where the Army had secretly set up like a little project to try and determine if dogs possessed ESP. And we'll talk about part. the dogs and whether the study became a dog's life. Ooh. We have Nick Wrong. Redfern with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. Yes, you are.
Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Whether it's personal mail, whether it's business email, you want reliable, dependable delivery, freedom from spam, freedom from viruses. Well, Polaris Mail offers professional email hosting services for your personal or small business use. Each account uses 25 gigabytes of storage, an easy-to-use webmail interface, and full mobile sync. Sign up today for a 30-day free trial at PolarisMail.com, PolarisMail.com. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. The site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I'd already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. Love gardening but don't love seeing your hard work destroyed by wildlife? Then use the number one most effective deer and rabbit repellent you can buy, PlantSkid. PlantSkid repellent protects gardens, trees, and landscaping by emitting an odor that browsing animals associate with predators. So animals avoid plants before they nibble, not after. PlantSkid is made in the U.S. from non-toxic, 100% organic, environment, and pet-friendly ingredients. Other repellents wash off in the rain, not PlantSkid. It's guaranteed to outlast all other repellents. PlantSkid was the first animal repellent to be OMRI listed organic and now comes in liquid spray, powder concentrate, or easy-to-use granular. Just sprinkle around your garden. For proven protection from deer, rabbits, squirrels, and other small rodents, use PlantSkid. Member tested and recommended by the National Home Gardening Club. Find a dealer near you at PlantSkid.com. That's PlantSkydd.com. Ask about our new vol repellent when you call 800-252-6051. That's 800-252-6051. PlantSkid, proven plant protection, guaranteed or your money back. If you owe money to the IRS, you can't make the problem go away by yourself. But with the help of Dan Pilla, you can get your problem solved once and for all. Hi, I'm Dan Pilla. For 30 years, I've helped thousands of people solve their tax debt problem, and I can help you solve yours, too. We take a very simple but proven three-step approach to solving your problem. First, we stabilize IRS collection action so you don't have to worry about the IRS seizing your bank account or paycheck. Next, we build a comprehensive plan to get your tax debt reduced to the fullest extent possible, sometimes even completely eliminated. And finally, we work with you every step of the way to get your problem solved once and for all. Call us for a free consultation. Call 1-800-346-6829. We'll work together to get your problem solved guaranteed. Dan Pilla has been protecting taxpayers from the IRS for three decades, and he can help you too. Call us today at 800 800- 346-6829. That's 800-34-NO-TAX. In a coming apart world, you need something to keep it tied together. That something is Atwood Rope, the highest quality rope made in the USA from exotic braids for military, rescue, arborists, shipyards, tow line, or boating. Quality rope at affordable prices you and your customers can depend on. Find a dealer or shop online at atwoodrope.net. Enter promo code RADIO to receive 100 feet of 550 paracord free with purchase. Atwood Rope, working to keep the world tied together. 
37 things to hoard. Do you have the 37 crucial food items you can't survive without? When disaster hits and mobs go crazy grabbing food off the shelves, your family may be without food or waiting in long food lines. Prepare now at 123survivalplan.com. That's 123survivalplan.com. Many people don't have these 37 food items. Learn what you need to hoard now at 123survivalplan.com. Watch the video over 1 million people of you to discover the 37 food items that will sell out first when disaster strikes at 123survivalplan.com. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to the Paracast. So, has this show gone to the dogs? People say I have a bad sense of humor, <laughs> but after listening to what Nick said, he's offered, by the way, of the pyramids and the Pentagon with Gene and Chris and the Paracast, you wonder, looking for psychic dogs or psychotic dogs? People both. But yeah, I mean, just as this is an example of how government agencies throw money around on bizarre projects, which sometimes have a chance of coming true or working in other ways, other times don't, you know. But this one basically was a project, 1952-53, where the government or the military, the army, planned a series of experiments to determine if dogs possessed ESP. And the plan was to, if, they, if ESP in animals could be proven, the idea was to put the dogs on the battlefield to see if they could use ESP to locate landmines. Now, they spent countless hours, time, project hours, etc., etc., trying to get this to work, and, and it didn't, you know. It didn't mean that the dogs didn't possess ESP. Some people say, you know, animals do have, you know, a fine, keen sense of ESP and psychic powers, but it didn't work, and so it was shelved but not before they spent, back in 52, something like $20,000, which was, you know, quite a substantial amount of money back then. But for the Pentagon, you know, it was just sort of like a dip in the ocean. So sometimes projects are initiated because they're guaranteed to work and they make sense. Other times, like this one, it really is like a fringe operation where you think, you know, what was the government thinking of? But the reason they do these projects is because if one out of 100 works and it works really well and it provides major advantage, then it was all worth it, you know, and forget the other 99 that were just screwball. Chris, let's move to another question. Well, it's interesting uh, that they'd be interested in this particular kind of psychic uh, ability of kind of pets, if you will. Rupert Sheldrake has done some good work in this area, uh, quite controversial work actually, looking at psychic links between dogs and, and pets and their owners. Uh, so I'm not surprised that, uh, that there'd be interest on, on, on that level by the government. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Do you want to comment on Rupert's work? Or? Well, yeah, I was just going to say that the very fact that the military, you know, couldn't sort of organize these dogs and train them to use ESP to find landmines doesn't mean ESP in animals doesn't exist. It's like, how, how are you going to actually tell a dog, we want you to use your ESP to find metal objects under the sand? You know, they might as well train them to try and use ESP to find a car parked 50 yards down the street. That, well, that of course, we've trained dogs to smell for drugs. Well, that's right. But, you know, I mean, we weren't, we weren't talking about drugs. You know, you talk about landmines. Now, whether, you know, they were looking at the idea of explosives having a distinctive smell, that's not mentioned in the files. But if they did, you might as well just say that because dogs have really good noses, you know, they found it through smell rather than psychic powers. So, you know, but that doesn't take away the possibility that some sort of ESP in animals might exist. It's just what the fact that the government didn't prove its point, you know. Yeah, I, I, I think beagles are very good at detecting explosives, if I'm not mistaken. I think they're the breed of choice for uh, detecting uh, nitroglycerin, uh, C4, that sort of thing. Here's a question from Forrest Lake, who's one of our newest 
additions to the Paracast Forum family, and uh, he's from Australia. Uh, Forrest Lake asks, in your studies on UFO aliens and ancient civilizations, would you say that there is evidence that man has been around longer than current scientific belief tells us? If so, could it be possible that man has been more technologically advanced in the past than we give credit for, and these ancient men might be misidentified as ancient aliens? Yes. <laughs> it's the short answer. I think, you know... You kind of, of addressed that a little bit before, but do you, you want to yeah. kind of well, yeah, get sure. antediluvian on us? Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things that I talk about that a number of researchers have suggested over the years is, you know, when people talk about ancient astronauts, but a lot of these stories are prompted by the fact that, you know, a lot of ancient people talked about the gods coming down in these fantastic flying machines and teaching them all sorts of advanced technology. Well, one of the other theories that's been suggested is that if in the past there were civilizations that were highly advanced but in different ways to ours, but equally there were different parts of the world that were still at very rudimentary levels, what would happen if, say, a highly advanced culture in, say, ancient India 30 years ago traveled over to what today is central England when people were living in huts and, you know, just running around trying to grab the odd deer for dinner or whatever, you know, um, and they saw some sort of advanced flying machine, etc. They might perceive it as, you know, the gods coming down, not realizing, you know, it was um, an offshoot of their own species from the other side of the world. And today, of course, you know, the initial reaction is, well, you know, we weren't flying anything like that back then. It has to be aliens. But maybe, you know, there is something to the idea that there wasn't sort of like a huge worldwide culture. There were a lot of splinters and they were at varying degrees of advancement and some of them weren't even advanced at all. And when they crossed paths, it inevitably led to these different legends and stories that really, you know, today push it more down a UFO path than they do down a, an ancient offshoot that was highly advanced path. And who's to say that they don't... Uh... They're, they're not still around, maybe sub-oceanic, living underground, have some sort of dimensional capability. Well, I mean, that's an interesting theory, you know. I mean, cultures all around the world, again, have legends of, you know, highly advanced beings living underground. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, Walter Bosley, a former U.S. Air Force Office of Special Operations um, officer. And we should uh, mention he's been on the Paracast several times. Oh, okay. Well, well, Walter's, you know, Walter writes under the, the alias of EA Guest. He's written a number of very good books. And um, he's, he's openly gone on the record as saying that his dad, who served in the U.S. military, was told that, you know, contrary to what people said, Roswell was an alien. I mean, you know, it, who knows if it's sort of um, like a layer on layer of a cover story, but he was told that the military secretly knew that there was like an ancient civilization on the earth that was sort of limited in scope and size and that lived deep underground and occasionally surfaced and occasionally had accidents, one of which occurred at Roswell. You know, it's kind of like the government prefers people to think it was either a military device or it was aliens rather than having panic that there's some super advanced civilization living below us that are the original rulers of the world, if you like. And um, That goes, you know, again, to the book that we discussed some years back by the late Mac Tonys, The Crypto-Terrestrials. Yeah, I mean, that, that theory is very similar. The idea that, you know, the, the alien presence on the Earth is actually a guise, a, a camouflage, deliberately put in place by entities who, you know, are from the Earth, who lived here long before us, and who, who know that we believe that them to, or think they're aliens and so they encourage that mythology because it acts as a cover for them 
when they interact with us. Now, do they interact with governments under their true identity, or do they still say, hey, yes, we come from Alpha Centauri or something? Well, you know, I mean, these are sort of speculative areas that we just don't know. But what I will tell you is interesting. A lot of people don't know this, but Nick Pope, who was, you know, formerly the the UFO desk guy at the British Ministry of Defence between 91 and 94, he wrote a novel in 1999 called Operation Thunderchild, and it was basically based around an attack on the British Isles by alien forces. And in the book, the U.S. government actually has a cover story that the aliens are an ancient human race. And you never saw it initially. It's not made clear, you know, are the aliens ancient humans or is it vice versa? Is it the other way around? But it's like a cover story that the U.S. government puts in place to con- to confuse the Brits when they get like a secret briefing. And, you know, you have to wonder, you know, where did Nick get that from? <laughs> you know, so. Well, that dovetails nicely to a question by Lord Summer Isle, who's been a longtime poster at forum.theparacast.com. And he says, not sure if this is really related, but I was listening to an old interview with Mac Tones recently, and he mentioned in passing that, that you, Nick, had come across some declassified documents regarding humanoids encountered on a Pacific island during World War II. Do you remember anything about this, or do you have any more information about that? Oh, yeah, I think what he's talking about is it wasn't documents, or at least I didn't say it was documents. What it was, it was a story that, well, actually several stories. One was uncovered by Leonard Stringfield, who did a lot of research in the 70s into crashed UFOs, and 70s through the 90s, I should say. And he heard a number of stories of, like, these sort of violent, small humanoids. But I did actually investigate a couple of stories from the sort of Japan-China area in, in the Second World War, where people had claimed to have seen, like, sort of pygmy-like characters in, in the forest that were, you know, looked sort of like very primitive humans. Now, you know, we weren't talking about access to advanced technologies or anything like that, but, you know, the the idea that there were sort of rudimentary or offshoots of the human race that weren't homo sapien still amongst us. And that's kind of like what Max spoke about in his book. You know, one of the things that he discussed was the idea that, you know, contrary to what we might assume, perhaps much of the image of the aliens or the crypto-terrestrials, these ancient humans, being highly advanced and having access to all advanced technologies was a bit of a ruse and kind of like um, a camouflage for the fact that they were actually on their last legs and they used things like holographic imagery to sort of make it seem like they were zipping all around the planet at any given time. It's all crypto-terrestrial spin control. We have Nick Redfern with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. No! The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. Hi, Ted Anderson announcing a great way to listen to radio on the telephone. By calling 760-569-7700, you'll be hearing GCNlive.com programs in seconds. Come to GCNlive.com, find your favorite host's dedicated phone number, and hear them 24-7. You heard me right, every show has a dedicated phone number. Stop by GCNlive.com and bookmark their number today. And again, that's 760-569-7700.
Hi, this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs? They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call 1-800-686-2237. We want to know, how do you use WebEx? Smartest thing my company did was to give us WebEx. I'm in sales, and now I get twice the meetings, close twice the business, and make twice the money. Guess I should say thank you, thank you to the folks in IT. The new free version of WebEx Meetings lets you take your office anywhere, your desktop, laptop, or mobile device. Get your free WebEx Meetings basic account now at WebEx.com. WebEx from Cisco. W-E-B-E-X.com. Webex.com. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs? They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call one 800 686 Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. That last laughter, he finally got it if they ever do a remake of The Shadow for TV, radio, or the movies. Call Nick Redfern. Not me. I didn't do it. But what Nick did was write this book called The Pyramids and the Pentagon, and it's worth it. It's from New Page Books, which publishes a lot of information about the paranormal and UFOs with Gene and Chris. And we were exploring here all sorts of interesting possibilities about the crypto-terrestrials. That takes us back to the alien form of communication using rocks and things. And I was thinking of Richard Shaver... The Deros and Tiros, the Under-Earth People, and rock books. Are we getting back to that now? Well, you know, we could be. I mean, I mean, Shaver's story was highly controversial. You know, it's not everybody who claims to get messages through the welding gun, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, um, and there's that's also sort of like reason a- to say, well, maybe Ray Palmer exploited Shaver, considering him just some kind of lunatic who could put together stories that he could rewrite and sell books. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's something we need to remember. Ray Palmer, who actually sort of co-wrote Becoming the Flying Saucer with Kenneth Arnold, you know, Ray Palmer was sort of responsible for bringing the man who created Flying Saucer, if you like, Kenneth Arnold, into the book world, you know. So he he played a historic role in in the UFO field. Of course, but but Palmer Palmer also has a shaky or questionable reputation. Now, you might remember the late Otto Binder. Now, Otto Binder was somebody who wrote comic books like Captain Marvel. He wrote science fiction novels, a very close friend to Ray. And I knew him. This is back in the 60s and 70s. I forget what year he died. And he told me one time that Ray Palmer was never above writing things just to get reader reaction. And certainly we also hear from Jerome Clark, our favorite UFO historian who worked for Fate magazine when the Fullers were running it, and they didn't have very kind things to say about Ray Palmer. Well, you know, I mean, the thing to remember is that Palmer, 
you know, was also an editor of a you know, massively selling science fiction magazine, which sold even more copies when he got uh, Richard Shaver on board. And people just got fascinated and obsessed by the story of the Deros and these sort of vast underground realms and cities. Now, it doesn't mean there's any, not anything to them, but Palmer, as the editor, his role was basically to get subscribers, to get readers, and get more and more and more. He had to basically sell magazines. He was there to make the magazine fascinating, compelling, sell magazines. And parenthetically, Um, by the way, the final stories about John Carter of Mars, remember that movie? They were published in Amazing Stories by Ray Palmer. He got the final works by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And, of course, the other important thing to remember is that, you know, if we look at what Palmer said about the Darrows and Shaver's story, you know, there's no evidence that Palmer ever dug deeply into anything to try and verify it. What he basically did was encourage Shaver to tell his stories, send them in, and then Palmer would publish them. It's not so much like he lied and hid that he knew what was going on really, etc., etc., he just asked for the stuff to be sent in and published it. You know, there was, I don't see any evidence that he did any sort of investigation to verify it or not. He was basically right. interested in a good story, telling a good story in a yeah. science fiction magazine. I guess the big concern would be, was he also telling good stories when he had supposedly factual magazines? Well, yeah, that's the big question. You know, it's like, has somebody crossed, you know, crossed the line from one to the other and not made it clear I mean, some people do this, you know, people like Gray Barker, people say Gray Barker's work was fiction, a lot of it, but I would view it more as like gonzo journalism, where he took real events, real cases and real people and had interesting ideas and thoughts he wanted to get across. So he spun it in the form of like a gonzo story. But a lot of people, they don't like gonzo type journalism because it confuses them. It's like, well, is it fiction? Is it fact? Is he lying? It's its own unique genre where you're telling truths in a sort of semi parable fictional way you know whether it's Hunter S. Thompson with Fear and Loathing Las Vegas or Jack Kerouac with On the Road On the Road is a novel but it's based on real events and I it's think- almost like a subjective very highly subjective form of journalism listen we have so yes, much ground is. to cover and not always enough time Chris you got some more questions well, we have a question from Angelo, one of the moderators at forum.theparacast.com. He's uh, kind of our skeptical side. We do try to keep a, uh, a good, well-balanced perspective on the forums. And uh, Angelo asks, Nick, how do you keep track of everything you research? Is there anything you've ever written about that you have completely changed your mind about? So I guess well, that's, yeah, a, I mean, that's a two-parter. Yeah, no, this, well, in terms of keeping track of everything, you know, you, you do what I think most people do, which is just preserve everything, you know. You file it in the good old days in filing cabinets, and today, you know, you keep it on your hard drive, you know, or you just put it on a thumb drive or whatever. So that's how I keep track of everything. In terms of, you know, if my views have changed, I mean, I've actually written books where I've specifically said this is a fascinating story. It's fascinating what the person's telling, but I don't believe a word of it. I mean, for example, my 2010 book, Final Events, this was a study of a group in the Pentagon that analyzed the UFO phenomenon and came to the conclusion that the entire mystery is literally demonic. And when I say literally demonic, I mean like heaven and hell, Armageddon, the devil, horns, forked tail demonic the harvesters of souls now i don't believe that at all but i didn't write the book to promote that theory i wrote the book because i thought it was fascinating that there was a government uh, there was a group in government that believed this that was funded to address this issue 
came to the conclusion and actually influenced a lot of powerful people in government. It was a fascinating story, but I made clear it was a fascinating story that I didn't endorse in terms of the conclusion. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of the things I write about, I'm not telling a story that I'm supporting. I'm telling the story of why other people may believe it. I mean... You're being a journalist. You're not expressing an opinion one way or the other. Well, no, I am expressing an opinion. I I think the demonic theory is complete bull. Now, the other thing about it here is it seems to me that maybe the government, especially in the 40s and 50s, are busy exploring German technology and they start getting into real flaky stuff such as ESP and all this other stuff. Was it again because they were so flush with personnel from the war and they needed to do things or maybe they wanted to figure out what the Germans were doing. They got into all sorts of areas that they don't do now. So what about today? Looking at the current Pentagon, do you think they're still doing wacky stuff behind the scenes? Well, I think they are. But The amount of money they have, Gene, they're doing everything under the sun and probably (laughs) way more. Yeah, Yeah, and the thing is, of course, the reason why we get a better picture of the past is because Certain things have come out through the Freedom of Information Act. Certainly post 9-11, although there's still a FOIA in place, you know, it's becoming harder and harder to, to get material, despite the fact that, you know, the government claims it's making things easier. And, of course, you know, it's need to know is becoming more sort of a clamp-down issue and things like this. So, you know, if logic dictates, if in the 50s they were researching ESP and animals and Noah's Ark and the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the 60s and 70s remote viewing through the 80s, 90s, you know, we see evidence of the Air Force going back and looking at Roswell again and all this different stuff. You know, logic dictates that there must be more going on and probably a great deal that we haven't, you know, even begun to uncover. I mean, the stuff that I talked about in final events with the Collins elite and the demonic stuff, there are a few fragments of that. The story came to me from this guy, Ray Boucher, who interviewed or has actually had a meeting with a couple of these guys who are working on this demonic UFO project. You know, he had face-to-face meetings with him. That's, that's why I wrote the book, because, you know, he, he was the impetus for the story. And that was as late as the early 1990s when the government was sort of dabbling into everything from like Jack Parsons and, um, you know, conjuring up golems and all sorts of stuff, supposedly. So. Oh, I love the way they just take our money and do weird things. I yeah. guess part of it is that it would be nice if sometimes they actually had some meaningful result. That would be more fun. Well, well, I think the thing is, you know, when we look at these stories, I, I actually think, unfortunately, from our perspective, the ones we hear more about are the ones that were tossed to one side where, but not always, but, you know, where something was, they hoped that they were going to achieve something but didn't, and so the file was closed. And then, of course, it comes up through, you know, declassification. I actually think the ones where, wow, they really achieved something, you know, that just went black, and those are the ones we don't hear about. So I, I don't think it's a case of they just never achieved anything and it was all a waste of time. We only see the ones, I think, that were a waste of time, or we just get snippets and fragments, like with the Ararat anomaly, which I don't think was a waste of time at all. This is never a waste of time because we have Nick Redfern aboard on the Powercast. We're talking about his book, The Pyramids and the Pentagon. With Gene and Chris, you're always in... The Powercast! <laughs> That one stunned me into silence. We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy. We've got like, I guess, 60 or so different items. And entails t-shirts, sleeves for notebook computers, 
iPad cases, mouse pads, the Paracast Jumbo tote bag, all sorts of T-shirts and jackets and stuff like that for men and women. We have a Paracast aluminum water bottle. All this stuff, you go to store.theparacast.com, store.theparacast.com. What makes it special is that the items are the best quality, great T-shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special in multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children, stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Paracast. If you go to store.theparacast.com, stop by and take a shopping tour. Iodine protection packs from HempUSA.org are now in stock for immediate delivery worldwide. Our iodine protection packs include micro plant powder, green life kelp, red palm oil, and our clear roll-on iodine that will feed the body the iodine it needs. All iodine protection packs are in stock, save you money, and ship for free in all 50 states. Visit HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. HempUSA.org has a revolutionary wonder food for detoxing the body and rebuilding the immune system. Microplant powder can help unclog arteries and soften heart valves while removing heavy metals, virus, fungus, bacteria, and parasites. Plus, it cleans and purifies the blood, lungs, stomach, and colon. Keep your body clean with Microplant powder. Visit us at HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. That bears repeating. Digestive health is the key to wellness and elimination of toxins. And Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse is the key to digestive health. Pro-EM-1 is a powerful liquid probiotic, strong enough to cleanse, gentle enough to use every day. Pro-EM-1 is dairy, wheat, and soy-free, contains all-natural and certified organic ingredients, contains no preservatives or animal products, supports a healthy digestive and immune system, supports weight loss, improves absorption of food nutrients, aids in controlling yeast infections, is never freeze-dried, and uses three groups of live, viable, beneficial microbes to cleanse and remove toxins. Order Pro-EM-1 Daily Probiotic Cleanse at Terraganics.com, spelled T-E-R-A-G-A-N-I-X.com, Terraganics.com. Or call toll-free 866-369-3678. That's 866-369-3678. Pro-EM-1, the raw probiotic. We all know that Berkey Water Purification Systems are the most trusted name in water filtration. As an authorized Berkey dealer for over six years and serving thousands of satisfied customers, the Berkey Guy offers amazing specials for Berkey Water Filtration Systems. The Berkey Light Systems include a set of self-sterilizing and re-cleanable black purification elements that purify water by removing chlorine, pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites to non-detectable levels and remove harmful chemicals such as herbicides and pesticides. Order the Berkey Light System today complete with two black Berkey elements for only $231 and the Berkey guy will ship your order free of charge. With the purchase of a Berkey light, the Berkey guy is also offering a set of fluoride and arsenic filters for only $39.99. That's over 30% off the retail price. Call the Berkey guy at 1-877-886-3653. That's 1-877-886-3653. Or order online at GoBerkey.com. That's GoBerkey.com today. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. With Gene and Chris, we have Nick Redfern. The book is The Pyramids and the Pentagon. And we've covered some of your questions. Others we've pretty much covered on the show. We'll get to more of the book. It's just fascinating. Always a great read from Nick Redfern. He puts it together. There is one subject here I'd like to get into. We've been talking about ancient history, the Philadelphia experiment, the Pentagon's experiments. And from time to time, we've talked about the Martian mysteries. And I guess because just this past week, I finally saw the movie John Carter, based on the Edgar Rice Burroughs novel, A Princess of Mars, about somebody, an Earthman, going to Mars and seeing the remnants of a civilization that was dying, different races and everything. So how was it? Was it good? Did you like it? It's a great movie. It got average reviews, but it's really bad because Walt Disney did not have a clue how to promote this story. Because if you look at the story of John Carter, I recommend you stream it, you rent it, whatever. Take a look and then think of how Avatar was influenced. Think about the fact that this story is influenced by the story of Pocahontas and John Smith and everything. Think about all the influences to science fiction. It came from a novel written in 1912 by Edgar Rice Burroughs before he wrote Tarzan. Really fascinating. Let's go to Mars. The face on Mars and the pharaohs? What kind of resemblance or connection do we find there? Mm. Well, again, this is, you know, sort of the, the, I guess, really at the far end, you know, of some of the more extreme conspiracy theories as they relate to ancient civilizations on Earth. You know, I mean, everybody has heard of the face on Mars. Even NASA, you know, admits there is a face on Mars, but their position is that it's not a carved face. They kind of view it as the equivalent of people seeing faces in clouds. You know, that, that, that's their official stance on it, that, it, it, yes, it looks like a face, but that doesn't mean it is a face. Bedelia? Now, you know, yeah, exactly. Now, a number of people have, uh, have suggested, well, not suggested, but have pointed out that in the region of Cydonia on Mars, where you can find the face, there appear to be what look like pyramid-type structures very close by. And the fact that in some of the photographs, the face itself, as it sort of peers upwards from the planet, has this sort of sphinx-like appearance. You know, when you put sphinx plus pyramids, you know, inevitably draws an analogy with what we see in Egypt, you know, in Cairo. In other words, this has sort of given rise to the theories, well, is it possible that some of these stories of ancient astronauts coming down and influencing or even outright building some of these massive ancient structures, you know, these multi-toned cities and walls, etc., etc., could whoever built them here on Earth or helped build them here on Earth have been somehow directly linked with whoever built the face on Mars and the pyramids on Mars, if indeed, you know, they are artificial and they're not just a, a case of, you know, they look strange, but they're actually not. You know, this is an area that's been the subject of, like, endless research and debate in the last few years. And, and people like Richard Hoagland, you know, have written sort of full-length books on it. Uh, Matt Tony, who we mentioned earlier, he addressed it very deeply in his 2004 book, After the Martian Apocalypse, which, again, you know, sort of drew upon photographs and imagery of sort of weird formations on Mars. And, you know, I include one in the book also, which looks, you know, again, people can put it down to like seeing faces in clouds, but it kind of does look like a side profile of an Egyptian woman, you know, with sort of the classic headdress, etc. And what's weird is that there are a number of stories relative to the face on Mars that suggest maybe somebody in government possibly knew about it 
long before the mid-1970s photographs surfaced from NASA. I mean, for example, one of the people who we have to look at is Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby, I mean, I don't know anything about comic books. I don't read them. Uh, but even I know that Jack Kirby was, you know, one of the most famous comic book artists of all time. He was also someone who was actually involved in a couple of CIA PSYOP prog uh, programs in the uh, 70s. Um, how so? Um, I want to hear this because Jack Kirby is probably one of the most famous comic book exactly. artists. He did a lot of the Marvel comic book characters like yeah. Captain America and the Avengers. And mm -hmm. he, by the way, that was not his real name. He was born Jacob Kurtzberg. Mm -hmm. So when you looked up information about Jack Kirby, did you check Jacob Kurtzberg? Uh, probably not, no. <laughs> but, I mean, the thing is, with, with Jack Kirby, one of the things he was involved in, you'll remember when the Iranian hostage crisis was on in 1979-1980, um, a lot of Americans who worked at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, you know, they were in prison there, basically. They couldn't get out. Um, you know, the, for all intents and purposes, the Iranians were holding them hostage. Well, what happened was that when the Iranians commandeered the American embassy, um, a handful of embassy personnel managed to escape, and they made their way to the Canadian embassy. And, of course, you know, Canada wasn't involved in a quarrel with the Iranians, so there was no big deal. But a plan was then created to try and smuggle out these sort of six or seven people back to the U.S., and it was done under the guise of that they were actually Canadian filmmakers in Tehran to make a, a sci-fi movie, which, you know, Tehran, Iran would be the ideal setting and it would have all sorts of references to Middle Eastern religions, etc. You know, it would be a good cover. And Jack Kirby actually provided artwork that helped sort of lend credence to the idea, you know, that it was a film crew, you know, there was like storyboard artwork that he did uh, for the CIA. You know, there are a couple of things like that. And the reason I mention this is because people have said that the government knew about the face on Mars long before the mid-70s. Now, back in the late 1950s, Jack Kirby wrote a three-part sci-fi story, a comic book three-part story, the second of which was called The Face on Mars and involves a group of astronauts going to Mars and finding this huge carved head on the surface of Mars, which one of them enters through the eye sockets and finds this sort of huge sprawling city inside. And, and there are other stories. Uh, I mean, you mentioned Otto Binder. He actually wrote a novel in the early 70s, which also focused on pyramids in, on Mars. Otto Binder was friends with Willie Lay. You know, Willie Lay has a, a deep background and connection to the whole German scientists, rocket scientists of the Second World War. We also have a comic, excuse me, a kids um, series of the early 50s, Tom Corbett, which was basically like a, you know, he's an adventurous astronaut who would fly around the solar system, you know. Uh, he was basically like a cadet. Yeah, Tom like a Corbett, space, space cadet. Yeah. There was a TV show and it was based on some juvenile novels of the period. Yeah, that's right. And what's interesting is that in one of those stories, it, it basically the theme of it is pyramids, uh, carved faces, trips to Mars, etc., etc. I mean, various people were actually involved in sort of the at a consultancy level with the program, who again could be traced back to German rocket programs, you know, with scientists brought over from Germany. So, in other words, you know, we have these different strands of stories that all seem to sort of preempt, if you like, the official discovery of the face on Mars in 1975. And we find people involved in these earlier stories having links to officialdom, like Willie Lay and like Jack Kirby. Now, So the 
intimation here is that they wrote these stories to what prepare us for these possibilities well yeah i mean the interesting thing is all these stories date from the 50s even the jack kirby one that was the latest one you know the theory is that possibly somebody wanted to subtly prepare people for the idea that there were there was life on mars or there had been and that there was evidence in the form of vastly old structures. That's the thing that runs through all these stories. The Dead Seas of Barsoom we're talking about here with Nick Redfern, with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. (laughs) America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs convert from so many formats i can't even list them download now to see if graphic converter is good for you like one and a half million other users guess what you can save money when you buy graphic converter use the coupon code night owl use the coupon code night owl to get a special price for graphic converter go to lemkesoft.com that's l-e-m-k-e soft.com lemkesoft.com l-e-m-k-e soft.com Did you know that 50% of heart attacks are brought on by infections? Did you know that hospitals are breeding grounds for antibiotic-resistant bugs like MRSA? The environment is infected with parasites, and the mild winter means ticks with Lyme disease, mosquitoes with West Nile virus, and cold and flu viruses will be on the rise. Protect yourself with nature's natural antiparasitic, antiviral, antifungal, antibiotic, Allicin, the heart of garlic. Get concentrated protection with Ali C and Ali Ban from AffinityHealthProducts.com. One capsule of Ali C equals 40 cloves of garlic or 100 garlic pills. With no garlic breath, Ali Ban has Allicin in spray, liquid, and cream forms with three times more strength than leading brands and cost less. Go to AffinityHealthProducts.com, spelled A-F-F-I-N-I-T-Y, HealthProducts.com, or call 877-888-7126. That's 877-888-7126. Protect yourself with Ali C or Ali Ban from AffinityHealthProducts.com. Survival is not about the end of the world. It's not about a hypothetical plane crash or the latest violet storm. Survival is about the satisfaction of knowing you can take care of yourself and your family in any situation, anytime, anywhere. CampingSurvival.com was started in 1956. No, not the dot-com part, the survival part. CampingSurvival.com has over 17,000 urban, wilderness, and preparedness items. Supreme customer service. Very low shipping and no games. We look around to make sure we have the lowest prices and CampingSurvival.com is 100% USMC veteran owned. Don't base your survival on the latest spring up on the internet company. Do business with an authority on survival. CampingSurvival.com Use coupon code GCN at checkout and CampingSurvival.com will take 5% off your order. CampingSurvival.com Confidence born of preparation. 
We want to know, how do you use WebEx? I live in my car, sometimes a rental car. Every day, I find a nice, quiet place to pull over and meet a client through WebEx, face-to-face on my smartphone. This is the way to do business. The new free version of WebEx meetings lets you take your office anywhere, your desktop, laptop, or mobile device. Get your free WebEx meetings basic account now at WebEx.com. WebEx from Cisco. W-E-B-E-X.com. WebEx.com. We the people grow cotton, weave fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit, and carting to a private bank, having it led back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Hi, Ted Anderson. I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800 686 this is Jerome Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast. Nick Redfern is author of a book called The Pyramids and the Pentagon. And we've gone to Mars here, of course. We started earlier talking about John Carter or John Carter of Mars. And it's a movie, of course, that didn't do that well. Disney took a huge loss on that, like a $200 million bath. And I hope that people will buy the DVD or watch it. And we were talking here about some of the concepts being written by novelists, comic book artists that the government was toying with. But in the end, is there anything about the face on Mars or pyramids on Mars that we should take real seriously? Well, I mean, I think we should take seriously the fact that we have what looks, you know, not everybody agrees, of course, but what we have is a face or something that looks like a carved face with pyramid-type structures not far away. We have stories going back to the 50s, even titled The Face on Mars, where the person or people in question had links back to the intelligence world. Now, does that mean something? Does it mean nothing? Does it mean everything? The answer is we don't know. But for me, the worst thing we could do is to ignore these strands and threads. And that's, you know, that's why I encourage research into this area. Not because I'm fully convinced it's going to be vindicated or it's going to be you know, just totally blown out the water if we go there and it really is just an old rock. That's Where do you worst. come down on a breakaway civilization scenario with, uh, that we've developed... Uh, at least rudimentary uh, interplanetary craft. We've already been to Mars, uh, for instance. Uh, Richard Dolan has been uh, touting this whole idea of a breakaway civilization lately. David Childress uh, kind of sort of hints around sometimes that he thinks maybe there is a secret space program and that we've been a lot more places than we admit. Where do you come down on that? Do you see any evidence of this? Well, I mean, I don't know as I, I agree that I would go as far as to say there's a breakaway civilization, but I think there are enough strands to suggest elements of something like a, a secret, probably military rather than NASA, space program of some sort. I mean, I'll give you a few examples. If we look at the, you know, the U.S. space program as it is today, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty much, you know, pretty poor states, you know. If we want to send, America wants to send astronauts into space, they've pretty much just got to plead with the Russians, you know, please will you send one of our guys up with yours, you know, and don't you know the Russians just love that? And people say, well, you know, how could we have fallen back so far and it's all just gone to ruin after all the legendary, you know, manned missions to the moon, etc.? Well, the more likely scenario in my mind 
is that that wouldn't be allowed to happen. Now, NASA, you know, primarily, although it's an agency of government, primarily it's involved in space exploration, but, you know, the space shuttle missions did launch spy satellites to the military and the intelligence community. But we hear rumors and stories suggesting, you know, the military may have its own secret space program, maybe one that NASA knows nothing about. Now, if that is the case, you know, there's no way they can be launching the equivalent of Saturn rockets into space or even the space shuttle because everybody would see these huge engines, you know, roaring as the, as the rocket goes up. People would be thinking, what on earth is that? You know, why weren't we told about that mission? So, in other words, the technology would have to be so advanced that, you know, they could launch a small craft, you know, say midnight in relative silence and it just, you know, it leaves the Earth's atmosphere. Nobody knows. So it clearly wouldn't be working by chemical propellants, etc. It would be highly advanced technologies. Now, this sort of brings us back to people like Gary McKinnon, you know, the British computer hacker, who said that when he was sort of doing his hacking activities, he claimed to have come across this list of military personnel that was basically connected with space missions, and they were described as non-terrestrial officers. You know, it was a whole ream of personnel. Non-terrestrial officers, you know, however you term it or say it, it kind of sounds like personnel working off the planet, you know, uh, because they were listed by name. We're not talking about non-terrestrial officers in the sense of being some alien military force. You know, it was like Colonel this or, you know, Admiral that. Does he so, have the names written out that yeah. we can actually look up these people and see no, if they exist? No, I think as far as I'm, I can recall... Yeah, I think he just saw it. He said there was 150-something, 155 names. Yeah, and I mean, if you Google non-terrestrial officers, you come back to what McKinnon said. In other words, you know, you don't find it splashed all over NASA's websites or the Pentagon sites, and it means something else. You know, it's, it's like if it's a real term, it hasn't reached the public domain or the Internet other than via McKinnon. But, you know, things like that. Some of the stuff Rich Dolan's pulled up, you know, he's, Richard's written a couple of good articles about this whole issue. Things like this lead me to believe that while I don't think, you know, I mean, I could be wrong. I don't think there are, you know, vast human civilizations beyond Mars and the moon and everywhere else just in case things go belly up here. I wouldn't be at all surprised if advanced technologies, you know, are far more advanced than we think and that there may well have been missions, you know. Maybe, the, maybe there have been clandestine missions to the moon and Mars and maybe that explains the almost like a determined push to deny there is anything on Mars, you know. It's like if nobody can go there, what's the fuss, you know. Well, the other question I would have about that whenever we raise the possibility of the secret space program, what about advanced weaponry? And if we have advanced weaponry, why don't we use that threat to basically stop all the Mideast nonsense? Well, you know, I think, again, a lot of it is dependent on who's got the weaponry. You know, is it the military as a whole? Is it sort of you know, covert groups that are following their own sort of agendas. You know, to what extent does the government not want to end war but wants to perpetuate it? It's like the old adage, you know, that war increases the economy. You know, yeah. that, that, who are the yeah, biggest arms dealers? Yeah, that's like an unfortunate fact that, you know, you go to war and it, to an extent it builds the economy, but, you know, what, you know when it got to the extent that you know, the, the money starts to be siphoned off from other programs, that's when it gets problematic. But in terms of creating new jobs and things like that, money at war is where it's at. So, you know, I mean, studies have been done, this whole idea of, you know, would it be economically feasible for the planet to live in peace? You know, and it sounds crazy that people would even want something other than that. But, you know, these sort of crazy people who say, 
no, we've got to have a state of war because it actually, in the long run, helps. You know, they're insane. Yes, insane irony. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just craziness. But, it, but that does offer a viable reason as to why highly advanced weaponry that could, you know, if it, even if they just used it at a localized level as a demonstration, could end warfare overnight. You know, it's like, if you don't stop, this is what we're going to use on you. You know, in the same way Japan was threatened at the end of the Second World War, but they, you know, they just carried on. And then what happened was they, the systematic obliteration of Japan began. And then when two cities were destroyed, Japan panicked and said, OK, enough's enough. We'll, we'll surrender. We show them you know, the advanced might... weaponry. Now it's just drones. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. But I think, you know, today you could unleash something possibly and, you know, just, just show it to people. Just do one demonstration. It's like, hey, stop. Um, and that could be done, but there are there are reasons certain people, politics, economics, they don't want that done. Now, can well, we think then that the possibility that advanced alien technology has been funneled into private industry or the military, and that's what we're talking about here? Well, I mean, that, that could be the case. I mean, sort of the, the perfect example of that is people like Philip Corso, you know, with the Roswell story about seeding alien technology. I don't, I don't dispute that as a possibility, and certainly that would be the logical thing to do because, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily realize that, you know, the military, when it's developing new weapons, it's not always done by army scientists. You know, they, they contract uh, work out to, to different companies, you know, to, to build the tanks for them or the aircraft. You know, the, the tanks aren't built in some Pentagon factory. You know, they're built by a company that makes them for them. So in that sense, it would make sense for alien technology to be farmed out. But, you know, I, I kind of view that as a little bit simplistic. You know, if you're talking about technology so advanced it was constructed on another world, you know, by beings that are vastly different from us and the concepts involved may be so far out, you know, could we really have achieved the sort of advances that Corso claimed in such a short period of time? You know, it's like we get hold of the Roswell debris, and within a couple of years, you know, we've got highly advanced computers, night vision equipment, fiber optics, and we've just suddenly, out of nowhere, you know, deciphered this technology that is vastly advanced of us. Well, you there's know, another possibility, like too, which I'd like to present. But first, we have Nick Redfern. The book is called The Pyramids and the Pentagon with Gene and Chris. You're in The Paracast. Ho, ho. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. If you want to get your website online and you need reliable service, first-class service at the lowest possible price, there's only one place to go. Well, DreamHost has a special promotion with our show where they'll offer you unlimited disk space, unlimited bandwidth, one-click web apps such as WordPress, 24-7 support. You can save over $55. You want to know how? Go to DreamHost.com radio. DreamHost.com radio.
Whether it's personal mail, whether it's business email, you want reliable, dependable delivery, freedom from spam, freedom from viruses. Well, Polaris Mail offers professional email hosting services for your personal or small business use. Each account uses 25 gigabytes of storage, an easy-to-use webmail interface, and full mobile sync. Sign up today for a 30-day free trial at PolarisMail.com, PolarisMail.com. Love gardening but don't love seeing your hard work destroyed by wildlife? Then use the number one most effective deer and rabbit repellent you can buy, PlantSkid. PlantSkid repellent protects gardens, trees, and landscaping by emitting an odor that browsing animals associate with predators. So animals avoid plants before they nibble, not after. PlantSkid is made in the U.S. from non-toxic, 100% organic, environment, and pet-friendly ingredients. Other repellents wash off in the rain. Not PlantSkid. It's guaranteed to outlast all other repellents. PlantSkid was the first animal repellent to be OMRI listed organic and now comes in liquid spray, powder concentrate, or easy-to-use granular. Just sprinkle around your garden. For proven protection from deer, rabbits, squirrels, and other small rodents, use PlantSkid. Member tested and recommended by the National Home Gardening Club. Find a dealer near you at PlantSkid.com. That's PlantSkydd.com. Ask about our new vole repellent when you call 800-252-6051. That's 800-252-6051. PlantSkid, proven plant protection, guaranteed or your money back. All whey protein powders are not created equal. Fresh liquid whey has been used for hundreds of years to restore health to the sick and youth to the aging. Why is it that no one reports these benefits from today's whey protein powders? It is because they are all processed with heat or chemicals which damages them, making them a burden for your body and making it more likely to cause allergies. One World Whey's True Cool process retains all the powerful properties of fresh raw whey in a concentrated powder. One World Whey is speeding up the body's ability to get healthy and it is replacing the need for many other supplements. To learn how One World Way may help you with fat loss, the elimination of inflammation and pain, detoxification of heavy metals, intestinal health, brain function, and increases in strength, energy, and muscle size, call 888-988-3325. Mention coupon code KNOCKOUT and you'll receive a free tube of knockout pain cream with your order, which eliminates soft tissue pain in 10 minutes for 90% of users. Call 888-988-3325 or visit OneWorldWay.com. That's OneWorld, W-H-E-Y.com. Emergency Essentials has Mountain House deals in June. Going on now, Emergency Essentials, the 24-year leader in emergency preparedness supplies, does it again with up to 25% off Mountain House foods. Don't miss these savings. All Mountain House number 10 cans are 20 to 25% off during the month of June only at BePrepared.com. Mountain House foods have superior taste and a scientifically proven 25-year shelf life because they start with fresh or frozen foods, then cook, prepare, and finally freeze dry them all the goodness flavor and taste are locked in as if handmade from scratch mountain house the same great meals enjoyed by campers and outdoorsmen the world over hurry now through june 30th call 800-999-1863 to experience exceptional customer service and the beprepared.com low price guarantee that's 800-999-1863 the choice is clear be unprepared or beprepared.com I don't want to forget this anniversary where Kenneth Arnold on June 24th, 1947 saw nine objects over Mount Rainier in the state of Washington 
65 years later, we still don't know much more about what UFOs are. We have Nick Redfern. The book is The Pyramids and the Pentagon from New Page Books. And we got into a little foray here into advanced technology. Part of it, of course, is that if we did recover a craft at Roswell or even at Aztec, New Mexico, how would we define or discern the advanced technologies like taking the world of Edgar Rice Burroughs in 1912 and handing Ed my iPhone, say, figure it out, man, and would it be that way? Or would some of the more obvious elements of their technology jumpstart stuff we've already been working on? Well, we're already working on some things, and maybe a few of these tidbits will help us, but the rest we haven't figured out in the next 70 years. No, I, I, I don't dispute that as a possibility, and, and it would be logical. The only, the only thing I kind of question in this scenario is the speed with which we reportedly did it. You know, not that we achieved it, but it, that in some cases, you know, things were kick-started, modified, and, you know, taken to the whole next level in pretty much no time at all. We you don't know, know the that, real history. We don't know if they manipulated the history. Who knows what's going to happen? Well, no, we there. don't know. You know, sure. that's one of the problems. We, we got so many questions. I disagree. I, the, the Bell Lab story and the transistor and development of some of those early technologies, uh, is, is lasers, for instance, uh, is, I mean, it's pretty famous in science. I mean, we're talking yeah. pat- many patents, uh, hundreds of patents, and there's a ton of documentation uh, that's a paper trail for all these inventions and, and developments. So yeah, I've, I personally find it very difficult to believe that, that the Corso scenario um, you know, is real at face value. Uh, there's, there's, there's too much of a paper trail. No, you're right. I mean, that, that's one of the, the big criticisms I have about the Corso story. is isn't the, the, the scenario that he, points, that he portrays, but it is the fact that you're quite right, that a lot of the technology he's talking about in various forms, already existed. Um, you know, and I, and I, for me at least, that's an important fact. And yes, it could have helped some of our programs if they were already in place, but isn't it kind of a little bit beyond coincidence that supposedly, you know, we were already developing transistors, already developing computers, already de- developing lasers, and suddenly all of these different things we're inventing, a, a slightly more advanced version of them falls into our lap. You know, it, it's that, to me, kind of is, is, is too much of a perfect picture. Or yeah. the whole book was just an attempt at disinformation. Let's move to well, one more topic been. before we split, and that is crop circles. Okay, so crop circles, what would the Pentagon know or care about crop circles? Well, actually, that's a weird one because it, it covers several strands. I mean, people have said, you know, that, there have been a lot of stories about government interest in crop circles over the years, but, you know, we never got any proof of it. But that, that's actually not true. You know, you've just got to know where to look. I mean, one of the things I mentioned in the book is I got hold of a whole bunch of files on crop circles from the Second World War uh, and from none other than MI5, which is the British equivalent of the FBI. It's like the British Domestic Intelligence Gathering Agency. Um, Basically, what happened was that in the Second World War, Allied pilots flying over Germany, or to bomb Germany, flying over Europe, reported seeing these huge formations in fields, not just like straightforward circles, but you know, intricate patterns like today's pictograms. And the first thought was, quite naturally back then, it's got to be like ger- messages for German fighter pilots or bomber pilots, you know, this weird formation. They look it up in their book and it means 
approach London from the northwest at 11 o'clock and bomb Buckingham Palace or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. That's which makes sense. You know, that's what that they would think of something like that. But what's interesting is the fact that these were crop circles back in the 40s and military intelligence was secretly looking at them. And the files have now been declassified and, I, you know, I reproduce quite a few of them in the book. But further down the line, with the Freedom of Information Act, um, one of the things that I mention is how in the 1990s, because the, I um, reproduced the documents in the book, is um, a reference to how government personnel, military agents, were actually in attendance at electron crop circles in Germany in 1993, um, at which a conference or a lecture that basically sort of addressed all the different theories. You know, are they alien? Are they man-made? Is it something to do with the planet itself? But beyond that, the biggest story that I talk about in the book is a very weird one where NSA analysts were looking at, into a, a rumor, and, and granted, you know, I point out in the book it was a rumor, that there was a tie-in between the crop circle phenomenon and the whole December 2012 phenomenon that was of concern from a national security perspective. Now, it wasn't from the perspective of the NSA somehow stumbled upon information, you know, that yes, 2012 is going to be the end of all things or some radical shake-up and it was linked with crop circles and they knew it and they were trying to hide the truth. It was actually far more down-to-earth but much weirder. The NSA had heard a story that there were sort of radicals, um, like Islamic radicals, who had secretly hired human crop circle makers to make formations of like a 2012 apocalyptic scenario or theme to sort of provoke anxiety in the British public. Because, you know, every year crop circles appear all over Britain, predominantly in the, in the county of Wiltshire, and they get splashed all across the newspapers. And if you type in 2012 plus English crop circle, you'll find countless examples where not only were they reported all across the British media, but the British media talked specifically about this doomsday scenario in the fields. And so, in other words, it did create anxiety. You know, and people have said, well, maybe it was aliens, maybe it was human circle makers just having a joke. But the NSA followed up this lead, which whether it went anywhere, we don't really know. But the lead was that radicals were sort of trying to exploit the crop circle phenomenon to create fear and anxiety. You know, whether it's true, you know, it's sort of a very bizarre theory, but it demonstrates, again, another link between the military or the intelligence community and the ancient past with the Mayans, but for a very different reason, you know, that goes beyond weapons testing or whatever, but, but it's still connected to the theme of the book. Yeah, it's the Collins elite. <laughs> They're responsible. The Collins elite did everything. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say, <laughs> I'm sure you're joking there, but I wouldn't say that officially or specifically because the Collins elite was actually a fairly small body of people but they influenced a lot of people they didn't have much funding they apparently were always complaining about not having enough money well it's just that that whole doomsday sort of you know negative vibe but one thing that that has always struck me over the years was something that the uh, newly uh, appointed uh, right-hand man to Lawrence Rockefeller Henry Diamond uh, quite a high-powered lawyer asked me in a phone conversation uh, because he, he was getting to know some of Lawrence's uh, more eccentric uh, pursuits and interests. And he, in a, I guess, a moment of, of candor, he asked me if I could 
tell him why Lawrence was so interested in crop circles. He says, why is he so interested in these things? And then he made the very curious aside. You and I both know this is probably British intelligence doing this from space. And, of course, my comment was, we do. And basically, I said, what about atmospheric lensing, this and that? You know, how would they do it? And he says, oh, they figured all that out. And the intimation was basically, it's like, Guys with nothing better to do um, with etch-a-sketches uh, creating crop circles uh, in fields, which I, I – you know, I'm, I'm not sure what to make of that. But the very fact that he said that in, in a pretty sincere, innocent-sounding voice, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. Wow. What fun this has been. So many mysteries in this book. So many we didn't have time to cover, but maybe we'll revisit them soon. So, Nick, tell us quickly about the book. Again, it's called the Pyramids of the Pentagon. It's basically a study of how military, government, and intelligence agencies since the end of the Second World War in the U.S. and Germany in the Second World War, and also Britain with Stonehenge, have sort of pursued ancient mysteries, everything from Stonehenge to the pyramids, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Noah's Ark, all sorts of things like the Ark of the Covenant, with a view to sort of weaponizing these ancient technologies and fantastic constructions, weaponizing them for the present and the future, if they're able to. So it's like a real-life kind of Indiana Jones-type scenario, using freedom of information documents and on-the-record interviews and things like that. A real fun book, a real great read, a real page-turner from Nick Redfern. Our friend Chris O'Brien has his new version of OurStrangePlanet.com that's in the final stages of perfection, but now live for everyone's attention. We're live at the Paracast on Twitter. And next week, we'll be talking to James Fox, who's one of the participants of a TV show called Chasing UFOs from the National Geographic Channel. Nick Redfern, thank you for joining us this week on the Paracast. All right. Thanks, guys. The Paracast, featuring Gene Steinberg and Christopher O'Brien, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.